0: The spy balloon incident continues to reverberate in Washington as the U.S. Navy and the FBI are working to recover the remains of the balloon from the Atlantic. The State Department says the balloon carried multiple antennas to collect U.S. intelligence. Today is Thursday, February 9th, and you're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the vast destruction of the earthquake that hit Turkey and Syria is becoming clearer with each day. The scene in one flattened city illustrates the scale. The death toll is more than 20,000 people. In President Biden's State of the Union address, he urged Congress to do something about police violence. But divisions in Congress make that a challenge. The proposals
1: we put on the table are non-starters, but they're unwilling to give us a starting place.
0: These stories and the numbers from Wall Street, also the forecast, are coming up. It's 401. Live from
2: NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The World Health Organization warns of a secondary disaster from Monday's earthquake cluster in Turkey and Syria. Lack of shelter and life-saving supplies poses a serious threat to thousands of displaced people exposed to the bitterly cold elements. The death toll has already surpassed 20,000 since the quake struck three days ago. NPR's Ruth Sherlock is in Gaziantep, Turkey, describing the extraordinarily difficult conditions rescuers are confronting in their search for survivors.
3: In the dark and the cold, rescuers are digging through the concrete of buildings flattened all along this highway to Gaziantep. The shock and adrenaline of the first few days here feels like it's being replaced with just an unbelievable sadness. You know, four days now after the quake, rescuers say they don't expect to find anybody alive under the rubble now. Even if they could have survived the lack of food, water, their probable injuries, their rescuers say they won't have survived
2: the cold. NPR's Ruth Sherlock reporting, an international aid convoy has been able to cross from Turkey into rebel held areas of northwest Syria for the first time in three days the fbi so far has recovered a very limited amount of material from the chinese spy balloon shot down off the south carolina coast the bureau is working with the u.s navy and coast guard in the recovery efforts here's npr's ryan lucas
4: two senior fbi officials familiar with the operation say the bureau has begun processing an extremely limited amount of evidence recovered so far from the chinese spy balloon they say only materials that were on the ocean's surface have been recovered including the balloon canopy, some wiring, and a very small amount of electronics. The main electronics payload, however, has not been recovered yet. That means they say it is too early to assess what the intent was or how the device was operating. The first bits of evidence that have been recovered were transported to the FBI facility at Quantico late Monday for cleaning and evaluation. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington.
2: AS DEMOCRATS ARE INTRODUCING A RESOLUTION TO EXPEL AND BATTLE CONGRESSMAN GEORGE
5: SANTOS, HERE'S NPR'S Windsor JOHNSTON. A FELLOW FRESHMAN, CONGRESSMAN CALIFORNIA DEMOCRAT ROBERT GARCIA IS LEADING THE EFFORT TO REMOVE SANTOS, SAYING HE HAS NO PLACE IN THE HOUSE.
6: GEORGE SANTOS IS A FRAUD. HE'S LIED ABOUT THE HOLOCAUST. HE'S LIED ABOUT HIS EDUCATION. HE'S LIED ABOUT HIS CAREER. recently he's been now given classified access to important information and classified information that he should not have.
5: A small number of House Republicans have also called on Santos to resign. Speaker Kevin McCarthy has remained behind the congressman, but has said that if an ethics investigation reveals something, the House will take action. Santos last month voluntarily stepped down from two of his committee assignments. Windsor Johnston
0: reporting. It's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts State Senate has voted to do away with the eight-year term limit for the Senate president. Democratic State Senator Michael Rodericks of Fall River testified today in favor of the change. He says no other position in the legislative or executive branch of Massachusetts has such a restriction on tenure.
7: With a term limit, the Senate is at a distinct disadvantage when it comes to legislating and advancing our members' priorities with the governor's office in the House, when any Senate leader gets anywhere close to that deadline.
0: Today's 32 to 6 vote clears the way for the current Senate president, Karen Spilko, or any future Senate president to serve indefinitely. More than 20,000 people have died after the devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria. There are relief efforts going on across Massachusetts. They include supply donations and medical missions. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer has more.
8: There are designated spots, like the Turkish consulate in Boston, where people can drop off items for earthquake survivors. The nonprofit Syrian American Medical Society is also collecting money for medical supplies. Board member Abdul Fatah Al Shar of Norwood has previously treated war refugees in the region affected by the earthquake, and says he and other local doctors are preparing to go again.
9: We are ready to take a break from our daily schedule. We will be able to have more than one uh, medical mission, and I'm hoping to be uh, a part of this uh, myself.
8: You can find a list of local aid efforts at WBUR.org. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Amr.
0: Two Massachusetts casinos broke state law on the first week of legal sports betting. Encore Boston Harbor and Plain Ridge Park Casino self-reported to regulators this week that they illegally accepted wagers for two local college basketball games The state sports betting rules excludes wagers on teams from Massachusetts colleges and universities unless those teams are in a tournament. The State Gaming Commission will take up the issue next week. 48 degrees now in the Boston area. Clouds linger tonight. Temperatures top 50 degrees by tomorrow morning. Then keep going up to about 58 by the afternoon. Lots of sunshine. And then the weekend feels more like February. Temperatures in the 40s. This is WBUR.
10: It's 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org.
0: We are taking less than a minute before going back to the news to tell you Valentine's Day. We'll be here in just a couple of days. And right now is a great time to send your loved one flowers from WBUR. They'll get Winston flowers and you will strengthen our journalism at WBUR. Today is the last day to save 10% on roses for your Valentine. And again, when you send your gift from us, your Valentine will get Winston flowers and you will strengthen our journalism. Thank you so much. 1-800-909-9287.
4: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And
11: I'm Juana Summers. The death toll from the earthquake in Turkey and Syria continues to rise. At least 20,000 people are dead, and the quake hit an area covering hundreds of square miles, collapsing thousands of buildings. NPR's Jason Bobian is near the epicenter of the quake in Turkey. He says the focus now is on recovering bodies rather than rescuing survivors. And we'll note this story for about three minutes contains disturbing descriptions.
12: As a rescue team carries a black body bag out of a debris pile that was once a multi-story apartment block, a group of women wail with grief. workers hold back a young man who lunges at the bag, wanting to see if it's really his mother. An old woman collapses on the ground in tears. This is just one family in front of one rubble pile in a landscape of collapsed buildings. Scenes like this are unfolding across a vast swath of Southeastern Turkey and Northern Syria. It's been more than three days since the quake hit when most residents were sleeping. Many people here in Karaman Maresh, commonly known as Marish, have accepted that they're waiting for their loved ones' bodies rather than their loved ones themselves. Getting a full body back to bury would be a blessing. Others say they'd take anything, a scarf, a shoe, Hakdan Saka is sitting on a pile of debris watching local volunteers pull blankets and steel bars out of another pile that used to be his sister's seven-story apartment building. Did they find any people in here alive? Yeah, very few people. Saka says through an interpreter that he's accepted that his sister, brother-in-law, and their child are
13: gone.
12: Now,
13: uh, right now, they're not looking for rescue. They're looking for funerals.
12: Prior to Monday, the city of Marash had just over a million residents. Now, most of the center of the city lies in ruins. Work crews with bulldozers and backhoes cut valleys through the fields of debris. Swollen black body bags sit waiting for collection in front of some of the rubble piles. The quake also knocked out the electricity and running water. People huddle around open fires to stay warm. Others are sleeping in their cars. The air is filled with dust, wood smoke, and the distinct stench of rotting flesh. One woman describes the current scene in her city as apocalyptic. Some help is arriving. In an open lot next to what used to be a major shopping mall, there's now a soup kitchen and a large white party tent. Bulent Yildirim is with a local Turkish aid group that's providing hot meals to residents and rescue workers. Lentil soup. In just a matter of days, local aid groups have arrived and are handing out food, blankets, toilet paper. There are piles of bottled water lining the main road. A tent city has gone up in a soccer stadium. What's missing are so many people. 55-year-old Nuria Jomru says so many of her friends and relatives are dead, she can't even say how many were killed in the quake.
0: Firstly,
12: from family,
13: four people died, but from the relatives, five people in one building, seven people in one building, so she's not able to count right now.
12: Her hands are bloodied and bandaged from digging through the rubble to search for her son. Miraculously on Monday, hours after the quake, searchers found Jomru's two-week-old granddaughter in the debris. The baby girl is named Alper. She's alive and she's healthy. Jason Bobian, NPR News,
4: Karaman Mirash, Turkey. The Biden administration says it has learned a lot from fragments of that Chinese balloon that crossed the United States last week. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman has been briefing members of Congress and telling other countries to beware of the PRC or the People's Republic of China.
14: This irresponsible act put on full display what we've long recognized, that the PRC has become more repressive at home and more aggressive abroad.
4: We're joined now by NPR's Michelle Kelleman, who covers the State Department, and John Ruwich who tracks China. Good to have you both here.
15: Hi there, Ari. And Michelle,
4: Hi. what more has Washington been saying today?
15: Well, so the U.S. only picked up small parts of the balloon, which was shot down over the ocean on Saturday, and they're still studying those bits of equipment. But what they say they have are some images from when it was flying over the U.S. that show the balloon had equipment that was capable of conducting signals intelligence operations. It had multiple antennas and solar panels to operate the equipment. The U.S. also says, that the company that built the balloon has links to the Chinese military. And this is all according to declassified U.S. intelligence. The U.S. has been sharing this intelligence with lawmakers and with other countries. State Department spokesman Ned Price today said China has some explaining to do. Take a listen.
16: They are presumably getting questions from countries all over the world uh, about the nature of this program, about previous violations uh, of sovereignty uh, of uh, some 40 countries across five continents.
15: He wouldn't say how the U.S. knows that these balloons have flown over 40 countries and five continents, but he said that the U.S. is talking to countries around the world about this.
4: And John, how is this all going down in Beijing?
6: Well, the foreign ministry spokeswoman Mao Ning was asked earlier today about this idea that, uh, that U.S. officials have said that there's this fleet of Chinese balloons that's been flying over dozens of countries collecting intelligence. She said she doesn't know anything about it, uh, China so far stuck pretty tightly to their script, which is that this was an unmanned civilian airship that strayed into U.S. airspace by accident uh, and that shooting it down was an overreaction. Uh, Mao Ning did engage in a little whataboutism uh, at the press conference earlier. She suggested that some other unnamed country was actually the number one in terms of eavesdropping and spying. You know, We'll see what happens in, as hard evidence comes out about what this balloon was capable of and what it was doing. Uh, China, it has to be said, has been fairly... Restrained, you know, within the bounds of what you might expect. We haven't heard a peep from China's foreign minister, for instance, or from Wang Yi, the top Communist Party guy overseeing foreign policy, or for Xi, from Xi Jinping, for that matter.
4: Sounds like the drifting U.S. China relationship is drifting farther apart.
15: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Deputy Secretary Sherman actually were due to go to Beijing last week. Uh, They called off the trip at the last minute because of this um, balloon incident. And now they're really entirely focused on talking to allies and partners around the world to take the China challenge more seriously. They say they're keeping channels open to Beijing and plan to reschedule the trip at some point. But it's not their focus now, and it's hard to see that happening anytime soon.
6: Yeah, from Beijing's side, you know, the saga of this balloon really seems to have caught Beijing off guard. Xi Jinping had wanted to improve relations with the U.S. and the West uh, for stability, you know, to focus on the economy this year, which has really been suffering. And China, when this whole thing blew up, was quite conciliatory, actually. It expressed regret about it. We haven't heard that lately. uh, And the longer this drags out, the more complex it seems it's, it's likely to become. Uh, That Blinken visit that Michelle was talking about was postponed. Uh, It seems likely to take a while uh, to reschedule it. They're still pulling parts of this balloon out of the ocean. Uh, But there may be an opportunity for some high-level dialogue next week when Blinken and Wang Yi, again, that's China's top foreign policy official, they're both going to be in Munich, Germany for a security conference. So uh, we'll see what comes out of that.
4: That is NPR's John Ruich and Michelle Kellerman. Thank you both.
15: Thank you. You're welcome.
11: This time of year, people from all over the world flock to Colorado to ski. It's not cheap, and increasingly, the big resorts can feel crowded. But a handful of mountain towns still maintain local ski hills that emphasize family and budget friendliness. Laura Palmisano with member station KVNF visited one in Lake City, Colorado.
5: At just 14 acres with one ski lift, the town-owned Ski Hill here isn't trying to compete with famous Colorado resorts like Vail, Aspen, or Breckenridge.
7: Well, our slogan is skiing the way it used to be.
5: Henry Woods coaches the local youth ski team. He's volunteered in the position for more than 40 years.
7: Skiing has helped me so much in my life, and when I was a kid, it helped me to have more self-esteem and be active and be in shape. I like the idea of imparting that to other kids. Kids like fourth grader Wyatt Loper.
8: Yeah, I'm kind of nervous because it's my first time skiing and I don't know what's ahead.
5: For a lot of Colorado parents, teaching kids to ski is pretty important.
17: We're trying our little one out in some skis, trying to get her uh, a little bit better at this.
5: Jeb Braco is visiting from Metro Denver.
17: So She's two and a half, so trying to get her in some uh, turns and work on everything.
5: There are a lot of ski resorts closer to where Braco lives, but...
17: We're trying to hit all the cheaper ones, (laughs) while she's not very good.
5: Lake City is one of six city-run ski hills in Colorado. Daily lift tickets run from $16 to $43. That's compared to around $200 at some of Colorado's most popular resorts, which again are way, way bigger.
14: We don't have as many runs as they do but it's got that small town feel, so it's very convenient to come here and to bring your family here. It's a great place for beginners to learn.
5: Rebecca Kaminsky has five kids who are using the oldest operating ski lift in Colorado.
14: Oh, the lift, <laughs> the disc lift. Well, it's better than a rope toe, so.
5: <laughs> Skiers sit on a disc seat attached to a pole between their legs and are pulled up the hill.
14: It is something that you will not experience probably anywhere else is getting to go up on a disc lift It's like riding an
5: antique. Lake City's low price lift tickets don't generate a huge surplus. So no luxury ski lodge here, just a tiny warming hut that could be described as a shed. But nobody comes to Lake City Ski Hill for the amenities. Out on the slopes, Coach Henry Woods offers some pointers. Put
7: your skis together
5: in between the turns. Woods says his little town Ski Hill is a treasure and he hopes it continues to run for generations to come. For NPR News, I'm Laura Palmisano in Lake City, Colorado.
4: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, Iran's foreign minister talks about Americans being held prisoner in his country and about the future of the Iran nuclear deal. This is WBUR. We're funded by you,
18: our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com.
0: Member FDIC was a down day for the Dow today. Stocks lost about three-quarters of a percent to close at 33,700. S&P and Nasdaq also lost ground. The S&P fell nearly nine-tenths of a percent to finish at 4,082. The Nasdaq dropped one percent to end the session at 11,790. Some random showers this afternoon and evening, overnight tonight as well. Temperatures actually increased tonight to the low 50s. Tomorrow, April for a day. Sunny skies with highs near 60, then pulling back to more of February like weather in the 40s over the weekend. 48 degrees now in Boston at 419.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, offering farm-to-table meals to go from their kitchen. See Sunday supper menus and more at volantefarms.com.
11: Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR supports your commitment to
20: curiosity. Save 10% until midnight tonight at WBUR.org.
0: And that is the figure we're hoping you'll remember. 10% is what you can save on roses for your Valentine. We are taking one minute right now just to remind you that Valentine's Day is just ahead. It happens Tuesday. You can take care of your gift right now and take care of your radio station right now. When you send your Valentines from WBUR, you'll get gorgeous Winston flowers and you'll strengthen and our journalism at the same time. So Winston Flowers can deliver your gift in nearly anywhere in New England. Find the perfect bouquet for your Valentine at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And take a look again at our website. You can send a dozen long-stem red roses with a contribution of $135 today. It's $150 after today. Two dozen long-stem red roses in a big sturdy box with a contribution of $225 today, $250 after today. there's the gorgeous ultimate romance arrangement that's for 450 today 500 after today and then the flower of the month subscription with a contribution of 1080 dollars today 1200 after today take advantage of these specials save $10 for your Valentine only today this is WBUR
21: support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform dedicated to helping businesses find the right people. Businesses can attract, screen, and interview candidates all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com.
4: It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro.
11: And I'm Juana Summers. In his State of the Union address, President Biden pledged a number of reforms to improve police accountability. In the audience were the parents of Tyree Nichols, who was fatally beaten by Memphis police officers. And the president challenged a divided Congress to act.
7: Let's come together to finish the job on police reform.
11: Do something. Here to talk more about this is Rashad Robinson. He's the president of the racial justice advocacy group Color of Change. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having me.
11: Rashad, just to start, are you satisfied with how you heard President Biden address police reform in his State of the Union speech?
1: Well, I think what we heard was in some ways exactly what we expect from President Biden at this point. I think the challenge, and you mentioned it, right, we are in a divided government. So this is not about listing off a set of policies that you hope Congress will pass. This is about actually having a conversation with the American people about power.
11: We should just note that the president previously signed an executive order that required federal law enforcement agencies to make a number of changes, including banning chokeholds, restricting no-knock warrants, mandating the use of body-worn cameras. But Rashad, Are there other things that you would like to see President Biden do unilaterally that would begin to chip away at this issue?
1: Well, we think that there's just far too much interaction that is funded between law enforcement and community that does not lead to solving any crimes. The thing, though, about executive orders, and I'm glad you uh, made it clear that this was about federal law enforcement, The vast majority of the issues that we are facing are happening at the local level. The executive order was the best that the president could do in the absence of the George Floyd Act passing.
11: I'd like to ask you if I could about the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. There were long negotiations on Capitol Hill on these issues. That bill passed the House. It could not clear the Senate, even with both chambers controlled by Democrats. So, legislatively speaking, Should the framework that was included in the George Floyd bill, should that be the place from where the work begins in this Congress? Or is there another starting point that you think that lawmakers should begin from?
1: Well, we should absolutely start there. I remember the conversations where Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina was supposed to bring along 10 Republican senators in order to land the plane on getting the 60 votes necessary to pass that piece of legislation. Now, that didn't happen because what we know now is that law enforcement made a very clear signal that they were not supportive of this legislation. And now we also need to know if the Republicans who stood up for Tyree Nichols' family in the well of the Congress and clapped for them, are willing to actually do more than clap.
11: And to that end, Senator Scott has said recently that he believes that the George Floyd bill, that bill is a non-starter this year. So where does that leave things? That leads us to ask Senator Scott, well, what is a starter?
1: What we continue to hear from Republicans, from police unions, from police foundations, from the corporations that support them, is that they want change, but they're unwilling to actually name it. That the proposals we put on the table are non-starters, but they're unwilling to give us a starting place.
11: Police violence happens in this country, often caught on film in excruciating detail. There are calls to action and they remain unmet. Is there anything that gives you hope that this time will be different?
1: What gives me hope is the advocacy and the the progress we are seeing in so many local communities, the the work to elect reform-minded district attorneys, the work to try new things around traffic stops and interactions with mental health advocates. The thing here that's important is that our civil rights can't just be a patchwork. They just can't shift when we move from one community to another, from one state to another. And that is the important role that the federal government has here.
11: Rashad Robinson, president of the racial justice advocacy group Color of Change. Thanks as always. Thank you for having me.
4: Young athletes in Florida will not have to report details of their menstrual cycles to school officials in order to play high school sports. That decision came today after weeks of controversy during an emergency meeting held by Florida athletic officials. NPR's Sarah McCammon is following the story. And Sarah, this emergency meeting came after weeks of controversy. Explain what happened.
22: So we're talking about health forms, Ari, that, you know, athletes have to fill out with their doctors and turn into the school in order to compete. But this really came to a head several months ago after an investigation by the Palm Beach Post, which raised questions about why athletes were being asked for this information about their menstrual cycles and who has access to that data. A flood of public comments came in to the Florida High School Athletic Association, which makes these decisions. And under state law, the association's lawyers had to read all of those comments into the record today. Here's just one of them.
23: A female's menstrual history is a private matter between herself and her doctor. It has no bearing on her ability to participate in Florida athletics and may, in fact, discourage participation due to shame and embarrassment.
22: And that's about what it sounded like for more than an hour today. And, you know, these are particularly fraught questions right now because many people are worried about how their reproductive health information may be used, both because of the overturning of Roe v. Wade last year and in Florida, especially because of Governor Ron DeSantis' support for a ban on transgender athletes in girls' sports.
4: Tell us more about these medical forms. What kind of information do they collect and why? Why?
22: In Florida and in many other states, that forum for years has included questions about menstruation, things like what age a patient started her period, the last date of her cycle. Historically in Florida, that section was optional, but there's been discussion recently about making those questions mandatory, and that's really what sparked a lot of this. I spoke with Dr. Judy Simpson-Don, and she's a pediatric gynecologist at the University of Miami. She says it's good for doctors to ask younger patients about their periods because they can be an important indicator of health, But she says that information is not essential for sports, and it should be kept private.
5: And we've had a big push in our state to make sure that parents have autonomy over their children's education. Okay, if we're going to be saying these things, I think it's very important that parents also have autonomy over a child's private health information and it shouldn't have to be required to be reported to the school especially for something like menstrual history which has absolutely no bearing on their ability to participate in these activities
4: okay so officials in the state reversed course today what does that mean for young florida athletes going forward
22: Yeah, after the hearing, after hearing from the public, the board voted 14 to 2 to adopt a new set of forms which no longer contain questions about menstruation. Going forward, starting next school year when this takes effect, doctors will just have to submit a one-page form signing off on the athlete's eligibility. That's instead of a longer one with more detailed medical information. One thing, Ari, that got less attention today, this new form that will be submitted to Florida schools requires athletes to list their sex assigned at birth. The old one only asked for sex. And the Florida High School Athletic Association says they've based the new form on recommendations from groups like the American Academy of Pediatrics. I reached out to the Association for explanation of this change and they did not respond. But one reproductive justice advocate in Florida I spoke to today told me she worries this information will be used to target transgender athletes in the future.
4: NPR Sarah McCammon, thank you.
22: Thank you.
10: This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's current season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. And Zeven Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at zevin.com.
23: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden continues his post-State of the Union campaign in Florida today, where he's taking aim at Republicans who have floated the idea of cutting Social Security and Medicare benefits. Biden told an audience in Tampa that he would create a nightmare for anyone who tried to do away with those benefits, including Florida Senator Rick Scott, who has since tried to walk back his proposal.
7: In case there was any doubt, just yesterday, he confirmed that he still, he still likes his proposal. Well, I guarantee you, it will not happen. I will veto it. I'll defend Social Security.
23: Right now, it appears that both parties have agreed to leave the government programs alone amid a showdown over raising the debt ceiling. This issue could certainly be revived for the 2024 presidential campaign. The U.S. and the United Kingdom are together Announcing sanctions against Russia-based cyber criminals, that announcement clearly calls out Russia as a safe haven for criminal hackers. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin has more.
20: The U.S. and the U.K. are jointly sanctioning seven members of a Russian cybercrime gang called TrickBot. For the U.K., the move represents the first sanctions of this kind. The U.S. Treasury Department will seize the target's assets and property within their control, making travel and commerce difficult. The criminals used a computer virus that stole financial data starting in 2014, targeting critical infrastructure, hospitals, and other businesses. In the media release, the Treasury Department specifically links the criminal group with the Russian government. Going even further, the Treasury identifies members of TrickBot as associated with the Russian intelligence services. The goal of the sanctions is to work with international partners to fight back against cybercrime. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News.
23: On Wall Street, stocks finish lower across the board today. The Dow was down about seven-tenths of a percent. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBURM Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The head of St. John's Prep in Denver says his school community is devastated by the loss of one of its students. The 12-year-old boy, Sebastian Robinson, and his parents, Andrew and Linda Robinson, were found dead in their Andover home this morning. Investigators say it's an apparent case of murder-suicide carried out by the boy's father. Head of school Ed Harriman says the crime is hard to comprehend.
4: The loss
24: of a student within the context of a school, especially someone so young, is heartbreaking. Uh, the circumstances of Sebastian's death um, are just extraordinarily tragic.
0: Classes were canceled today at the school. The Internal Revenue Service is recommending Massachusetts taxpayers hold off on filing tax returns if they got a special tax refund from the state in 2022. Massachusetts issued special refunds to about 3 million people last year because state revenue figures triggered a state law known as 62F that requires the return of excess collections. The IRS has not decided whether those rebates are subject to federal tax. Michael Sacco is an accountant from Worcester and is taking the position that his clients proceed with filing.
4: We're going to include this 62F refund as part of or in addition to the normal state tax refund that you received and would include it in income.
0: Sacco says if you've already filed your taxes, you may have to amend your return based on what the IRS decides. The state announced today it is now covering the cost of Massachusetts residents to take a high school equivalency test. Students can take either the general education development or GED test or the high school equivalency test known as the HiSET. Cost will cover an initial test in each subject as well as two retakes. Governor Moore-Healy says the state's investment will encourage more adults to continue their education. 48 degrees now in the Boston area. Cloudy overnight tonight, inching to the low 50s by daybreak tomorrow. Tomorrow's looking like a beautiful spring day, even if it is February. Sunny skies, light winds, high temperatures should come close to 60. Again, 48 degrees now in Boston at 435.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum. Presenting Spirits. Saring Sherpa with Robert Beer. On view now, plan your visit at PEM.org.
0: We have right now an opportunity for you to send Winston flowers to someone you care about, a loved one, a friend, whomever, somebody who doesn't even know you're thinking about them. Put your money to work for you and get a Valentine through Winston flowers. We're hoping that you will order them through WBUR because number one, you can save 10% on your roses, the four different selections, if you order today. And number two, when you order the Valentine's, not only do you get beautiful roses, but you also support the news that you hear on WBUR. The story we have coming up, the interview with the prime minister of Iran and a story about child influencers whose videos on social media feature a heaping helping of junk food. Please make your pledge now. Get your flowers, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Support
25: for NPR comes from this station. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive nerve relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com.
11: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Tehran. When I sat down this week with the foreign minister of
26: Iran, he made the following remarkable observation that people here in Iran can, quote, freely voice their ideas. That would come as news to the thousands of people who have been detained these last few months in anti-government protests. We aired that statement yesterday in the first part of my conversation with Iran's top diplomat, Hussein Amir Abdullahiyan. Today, part two, where we pushed him on it. We have been talking to people in many parts of Tehran, many lines of work, young, old. Almost all of them were frightened to speak. They were frightened to speak to a journalist. They're frightened to criticize the government. They're frightened to speak out. Moving on from that, let me ask about the Internet here. Why is the Internet restricted in Iran?
9: First of all, I don't think that anyone is really frightened to interview um, with you. I guess this is the wrong impression of yours. The very presence of yourself here in Iran, interviewing people freely, um, is a testament to freedom here.
26: People told us this repeatedly, and when we asked to interview them, they pointed up and pointed
9: at cameras. They're watching. They're watching.
13: Then you could
9: interview them um, on a blind spot, (laughs) But, but let's move on to the internet. Yes. You see, when the situation gets critical, when there are security concerns, when um, there are uh, threats of um, terrorist acts, and when people have been targeted, it is only too natural for us to. Uh, do everything that um, that we can, uh, the police and the security organizations. You see, during the raid to the U.S. Congress, even the former U.S. President was banned from Twitter. What proportion really is there uh, when we were talking about freedom and banning the first person in command in the U.S. from the internet. Pre- President, if I may, President Trump was yes, banned by Twitter, moment, by Twitter, by yeah. Twitter,
26: not by the U.S. government. It Are you acknowledging man? that your government is restricting and slowing down the
9: internet Twitter here? That but, the um, Twitter that control is, the is, the control is controlled by, control. by the government and it, in fact, uh, banning um, no. President Trump it's was at the company. order of the government. It's uh, a private company. It's not, not, not controlled Trump by is. the U.S. government. Of
26: course. Uh, we no
9: friends to Trump.
26: We interviewed one young woman last night. She tried to show me her Instagram feed on her phone. It doesn't load. She tries. She tries. Just. She believes, she told us, she believes this is to prevent her and others from telling the world what is happening
9: here. Is that true?
13: Instagram, yeah. Instagram
9: is um, restricted in Iran, true.
13: This is
9: so, because during the riots, Instagram promoted and, in fact, it trained people how to make Molotov cocktails and um, other uh, instruments of terror. And, therefore, it trampled the very policies it set for itself. Should Instagram agree with the our terms in Iran if they establish an office here and succumb to our rules and regulations, they can operate freely. Recent events here are shaping how the rest of the world views
26: Iran, which is why I put questions about them to Amir Abdullahian. But after more than 25 minutes of back and forth, as he spoke through his interpreter, he pointed out that he is the foreign minister. And why weren't we asking him questions about foreign policy? So we did. The nuclear deal. The JCPOA. Is it dead?
9: Mm, uh, Americans keep sending us messages, but in fact, they have adopted some, some sort of a hypocritical behavior. On the one hand, we keep receiving messages from Rob Malley and Blinken. We receive um, foreign ministers, and they, in fact, uh, give us and uh, forward us the messages from Americans. From the messages we receive, I can say that the Americans insist that we push forward until we can finalize a deal. Concurrently, however, um, they say different things um, when they um, appear on media. In fact, I sent a message to be forwarded to the American authorities asking, why have you adopted a hypocritical behavior?
26: Who who did you send the message to,
13: how
9: do you communicate? Uh, To Mr. Blinken, of course, through one of the foreign ministers. Our secretary. I'm asked the question, why hypocrisy? If you want to return to the deal, why do you say one thing to the media and the other through our diplomatic exchanges? So you would like a more consistent message and you believe you're not
26: getting it from the United States. The head of the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency says that Iran has now amassed enough highly enriched uranium to build several nuclear weapons, his words. Um, Will Iran build nuclear weapons?
9: Uh, We have high capabilities when it comes to peaceful nuclear energy. In order to respond to wrong American behavior and within the framework of reciprocity, we leveled up our nuclear activities. However, when it comes to our beliefs and values, we do not pursue the making of a nuclear bomb.
26: By now, we had already spoken for longer than our agreed time with the foreign minister. But I also wanted to ask about the status of Americans here. Iran has released Bakard Namazi, an American citizen who was imprisoned here in Iran. His son Siamak is still being held here. Is there hope for his release and the other American citizens detained here?
9: Yes, in fact, we agreed um, with the Americans on this, that the agreement has been in place ever since March. The exchange of prisoners is a humanitarian thing, after all. Um, back in March, Americans even dispatched their representative, um, who was a UK national, to Iran. Less than two months ago, um, their representative was in Iran again. The agreement is on the table. There are technical steps to be taken by the American side, and even this here, I see some sort of confusion in America. They um, put it off for tomorrow, for the next week, but uh, we have every readiness to do
13: that. We are ready to do this
9: within the framework of the minutes of an agreement which was formed through the participation of a third party. I will explain
13: to you. In fact,
9: we agreed with the American side so that the Americans would introduce a representative.
13: They did, and it
9: was a UK official. The representative in question um, was in Iran in the past weeks, and we updated the agreement that we had back in March. We're ready to exchange our prisoners, but there are technical steps uh, that need to be taken by the Americans. We are awaiting the technical steps to be taken. The foreign
26: minister did not elaborate on what the steps are. Here is how our interview ended.
9: I wish you a pleasant um, stay here in Iran. There are very few cameras on the streets in Iran. I don't know where you have been and where you um, conducted your interviews with people. People in Iran are free and they express themselves quite freely.
26: I am glad to be in Iran. I appreciate your taking our questions. And I did see many cameras. But the broader point is that we are glad to be here speaking with Iranians and hearing what is on people's minds. Hossein Amir Abdullahian, Foreign Minister of Iran. You'll find both parts of our conversation at npr.org. Our reporting here in Iran, speaking with both officials and regular
11: people, continues. This is NPR News.
4: A Holocaust survivor with a surprising story died last week at the age of 97. Solomon Perel survived World War II by hiding his Jewish identity and joining the Hitler youth. His story is told in the 1990 film Europa Europa. NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv has this remembrance and the story you're about to hear includes a description of sexual assault.
27: Solomon Perel didn't tell his story of survival for decades. His niece Nomi Brocken told NPR why.
0: My father told him always, nobody is going to believe you, to believe your story. The other brother said always, I don't believe you. You are lying.
27: Peril was 14 when the war broke out, and his parents told him to flee. He was in the Soviet Union when Germany invaded. This is Peril speaking in Hebrew in a video testimony by Israel's Holocaust memorial, Yad Vashem. He says a German soldier told him, Hands up, are you Jewish? And he said, I'm German. The soldiers made him an interpreter. One day he was taking a bath when a German officer tried to rape Peril and discovered he was circumcised, he was Jewish. Instead of turning him in, the officer said, I won't hurt you. They kept each other's secret. Then Perel was put in a boarding school of the Hitler Youth, the Nazi youth movement, and he was sent to the front lines until the end of the war, the whole time suppressing his real identity to survive.
8: This
14: is a very rare story.
27: Holocaust educator Orit Margaliot interviewed Perel for the video testimony.
14: We have Jews um, using false papers, and presenting themselves as Aryans in different places throughout the time of the Holocaust. But to be in the lion's mouth, lion's den, that every moment you can be caught, and this is something he also stresses out constantly through his testimony, is a very unique position.
27: After the war, he moved to Israel. Of his family, he and two brothers survived. He only told his story in the 1980s. It was made into a 1990 feature film, Europa Europa.
10: For Solomon Perel, war brings comfort in the strangest places.
27: It won an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. Perel said his identity as the Nazi youth, Yupp, that kept him alive always remained with him. He said in the video testimony, whenever I watch documentaries about that time and see a swastika, Yupp awakens. When I see them march, Yupp wants to march with them. I can't get rid of that ideology. The Hitler Youth lives inside of me. Perel's story was not very well known in Israel. Maybe it was hard for Israelis to embrace. His grandnephew, Amit Bracken.
24: Going through the Holocaust as a member of the enemies, uh, youth movement, identifying with all the songs and with the, uh, uh, the cheers and everything. Uh, I think it's a difficult thing to swallow. But Perel
27: was well known in Germany where he'd lecture young German students about the dangers of being taught to hate as he was at their age. He died last week of pneumonia at 97. At his memorial in Germany next week, his family will honor his dying wish. That Beethoven's ode to joy be played in his memory. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv.
11: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered in about 15 minutes. Southwest Airlines was in the hot seat in Washington today. In the forecast, clouds linger tonight. Temperatures top 50 by tomorrow morning. Then keep going up to about 58 by the afternoon. Lots of sunshine tomorrow. The weekend feels more like February. Saturday should be sunny, gusty winds, only about 40 degrees tops. Then Sunday, partly sunny, a little bit milder in the mid-40s. 46 degrees now in Boston at 449.
19: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by CB Team in Lexington. Traditional as well as accelerated cognitive behavioral therapy for kids and adults with OCD and anxiety.
28: CBTeam.org. Sending Winston Flowers from WBUR supports
6: your lifelong commitment to learning and growing. Save 10% until midnight tonight at WBUR.org.
0: This is the only day you can order yours and save 10%. Again, it's by midnight tonight to get roses for your Valentine. Valentine's Day comes up on Tuesday. You can take care of two things right now. In fact, you can order some beautiful roses and support WBUR and all the news that you hear at the same time. We are hoping that you will take a look at our website, WBUR.org and uh, make your phone call. Select from four beautiful offers. There's a dozen long stem red roses, two dozen long stem red roses, the ultimate romance arrangement. You would not believe how that looks. Too many roses and uh, other uh, orchids and things to describe right now. And then the Flower of the Month subscription, one
19: 800 wburorg WBUR supporters include Lesley University. Inspire future generations with an education degree from Lesley University. Learn more at lesley.edu. And Pioneer Charter School of Science, providing students with a rigorous college prep academic curriculum with two campuses serving Greater Boston and the North Shore. Apply online at pioneercss.org. From
11: NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers.
4: And I'm Ari Shapiro. There are lots of kid YouTubers. Some have tens of millions of subscribers and billions of video downloads. Well, a new study finds that these videos frequently showcase junk food, which raises concerns that these child influencers are actually influencing kids' food choices. NPR's Maria Godoy has more.
29: This is a YouTube video made by kids for kids. The video features two pint-sized child influencers running around in search of soda. (laughs) Soda! This particular channel has 16 million subscribers, that's peanuts. Some kid YouTubers have more than 100 million subscribers, and they're extremely popular with young kids. Kids as young as age 3 are spending time on YouTube. Fran Fleming is with the Red Center for Food Policy and Health at the University of Connecticut. She and her colleagues wanted to know what kind of food and drink brands kids see when they watch these videos, so they analyzed hundreds of videos produced by some of the top kid influencers on YouTube. Turns out, food was often a co-star. Four out of every of the ten videos that we viewed had food or beverage branded products. And most common were candy, sweet and salty snacks, sugary drinks and ice cream and branded toppings. About a third of the time, the kids were shown eating the junk foods. And Fleming says that's a problem. Prior research has found that when young kids are exposed to food marketing, especially when they see someone they admire eating a product, it can strongly impact what they want to eat too – And what they asked their parents to buy. Which is something that's called pester power. And most parents or anyone who spent any time with a child knows the pester power. Now, YouTube actually banned all food advertising on channels with content made for kids back in 2020. But Fleming says her team's findings show that hasn't stopped unhealthy foods from showing up a lot. The study didn't look at whether child influencers are actually being paid to feature those foods, and only one video out of hundreds acknowledged sponsorship. By law, such relationships must be disclosed. Perhaps these are unpaid, but it doesn't mean that the effect is different. Other research has found that YouTube videos often create an environment where kids can watch other kids live out their wishes. Dr. Jenny Rudeski is with the University of Michigan. She's a leading researcher on kids and digital media.
21: Content creators are kind of packing their videos with these highly desirable, highly pleasurable items. You know, huge pieces of candy and cake and m and all over the place because they know that that gets more
29: engagement from child viewers. A YouTube spokesperson told NPR that they have measures in place that make it harder for creators of kid content to profit from videos that focus on food brands. Jenny Raduski says those measures are good, but her research has not found dramatic signs of improvement. Maria Godoy, NPR News. It's being called the Kelsey Bowl. On Sunday, when the Philadelphia Eagles go up
11: against the Kansas City Chiefs, Jason and Travis Kelsey will do something that has never been done before in a Super Bowl. They'll become the first brothers to ever play against each other in the big game. And even though these brothers now live in different cities, they have never forgotten where they came from. Here's Travis Kelsey speaking during his High School Hall of Fame inauguration in 2018. Every
30: single thing that I do is for this city. And I know it's, it's, it sounds cliche, but I promise you, every single thing that I do out there, when you see me dancing in the end zone, that's Cleveland Heights will be right there.
11: Kansas City Star reporter Eric Adler recently visited the Heights, as it's called, and he joins me now to talk about the place that forged the Kelsey brothers. Hey, Eric, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. All right, I want to start with the clip that we just heard. Travis Kelsey got pretty emotional in that speech talking about the place where he and his brother grew up and it seems like it's a place that they both still just really
24: love. Oh, yeah. No, ab- absolutely. I don't think there's, there's no doubt about that. Listen, you know, you there, there's nature nurture, right? I mean, everybody in the world knows that part of them was forged by the place that they they grew up in. And and yet you'll find these people who distance themselves from the place that they grew up in I mean can't wait to get away from them and there's so many people who will uh in some ways fudge it you know you say (laughs) no offense but you'll say you're from New York City when really you're from Fort Lee Mm -hmm. these two guys um have embraced their town always and forever I mean both Jason and and Travis I mean it's uh they have a, a podcast called New Heights when Travis Kelsey gets on the air with big games and introduces himself. It's Travis Kelsey from Cleveland Heights, Ohio. They have never stepped away from that place, and I think the town knows it.
11: And how do people in Cleveland Heights talk about the Kelsey brothers? Like, I'm sure they have to be buzzing about them right now.
24: Oh, they embrace it. Are you kidding? Uh, This week, they've had major celebrations. I mean, you have to put this in perspective, right? This is Cleveland Browns territory. These people, the Browns are deep, deep, deep in the clay. And yet, all week long, they've been celebrating these two boys, uh, boys that grew up with them. And I think we can talk about that, but I think it's because of how they just embody this city, how they really personify it. The, the high school they went to is lit up in both red and green, uh, red on the west side for the Chiefs and green on the east side for the Eagles. And I don't think that's just because they're from there. I mean, part of it is that these players are so devoted to the town. They not only don't shy away from them, they really, really sort of pr- promote the fact that they're there.
11: Let's talk about football a little bit. There are some big differences between Jason and Travis Kelsey, though they are both past Super Bowl winners and incredibly successful dynamic players. But in watching them on the field, they seem to have really different personalities. What did their old coaches and teammates tell you about their styles?
24: They sort of put it in terms of the town itself. What you have there is this, in some sense, a it's a very, very diverse town. If you talk to one one person in Cleveland Heights, you may as well talk to all 44,000, and they'll all use the same term, which is diverse. You know, we're this diverse community. We have half white, it's about 40% black, it is super rich, uh, and it's super poor. There is this sort of conglomeration of folks there that have given both of the uh, Kelsey brothers this sense of sure-footed confidence in sort of walking in any kind of circle of people so sort of they they're both very very confident in their talents so you have jason you know just sort of uh grinding down there as well you'll have travis is you know again this light-footed kind of light-hearted flashy player
21: i
11: know you've talked about this city split in half lit up and green on one side and red on the other but do you get the sense that this town is going to pick a side ultimately or is there just going to be a ton of cheering no matter who wins the big game
24: the Kelsey's family has both said, that you know, they're going to root for whoever's on offense. And you get the sense that some people have some people have choices. There are a few who will say that they are tipping towards Jason only because he's older. He, they both have Super Bowl rings. It'd be great to, for him to have a second ring because they believe that Travis is going to be there again and maybe time again. But no, they're just rooting for these sons of the town.
11: That's Eric Adler with the Kansas City Star. Eric, thank you.
24: Thank you.
4: Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
25: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families, IWPR.org. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. Stanhopeframers.com. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7
5: WBUA Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen
0: anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A U.S. Senate hearing today explored the causes and impact of recent air travel disruptions. The CEO of Southwest Airlines was in the hot seat to answer for the airline's historic meltdown over the holidays. Some Democrats call for the airline passenger's Bill of Rights. It's Thursday, February 9th, and this is All Things Considered. i Lisa Mullins also coming up. There's a severe housing shortage in the U.S. Some states want to change old zoning laws to create more affordable housing.
16: I was surprised that there was not more enthusiasm around building these smaller scale housing types amongst the developers that we interviewed.
0: And we remember the man who defined pop music and film scores for decades, Burt Bacharach, has died at the age of 94. News headlines are next.
31: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Biden administration says that Chinese balloon that crossed the U.S. last week had equipment on board to collect intelligence signals. And China's been using them on five continents, as we hear from NPR's Michelle Kalman.
15: The State Department says China has targeted more than 40 countries with these spy balloons, and U.S. diplomats have been briefing countries around the world about the threat. China has repeatedly accused the U.S. of overreacting and has insisted that these are civilian weather balloons. But a State Department official says the U.S. has images from U-2 flybys that show the balloon had equipment that was clearly for intelligence gathering, including multiple antennas and solar panels large enough to operate the equipment. The U.S. believes that the manufacturer of the balloon has a direct relationship with China's military. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
31: Congressional lawmakers on Capitol Hill today heard from employees of Southwest Airlines hearing following a December meltdown at the carrier which resulted in nearly 17,000 canceled flights and passenger luggage scattered around the country. A Southwest executives said the airline is upgrading its software to better respond to winter storms, but Captain Patrick Murray, president of the Southwest Airlines Pilots Association, says the problems have been building for some time.
28: For years, our pilots have been sounding the alarm about Southwest's inadequate crew scheduling technology and outdated operational processes. Unfortunately, those warnings have been summarily ignored by Southwest leaders.
31: Southwest says it has reimbursed hundreds of thousands of affected passengers. Over lawmakers on the committee said there will be other storms and efforts need to be undertaken to ensure such massive disruptions don't happen again. Before the Florida High School Athletic Association is reversing course on a medical form student-athletes complete before playing. Remember station WUTF Jack Lemnis reports the form would have required female athletes to disclose detailed menstruation history
24: in an emergency virtual meeting the board voted 14 to 2 to remove all questions relating to menstruation on the sports physical form for student-athletes until now the questions have been voluntary the vote came after more than an hour of reviewing many public comments expressing disapproval board member doug dodd supported the motion
10: you know i've never seen uh, such a skewed response on an issue by people on all sides asking uh, that we eliminate these questions and keep this health and medical information private.
24: The Commons expressed privacy concerns for female student athletes if the measure would be passed. Others noted the contrast between the medical information required by female students compared to male students. For NPR News, I'm Jack Lemnis.
31: Stocks after bouncing higher early in the trading session turned the other way later in the day after investors got more information on the quarterly earnings numbers. The Dow fell 249 points. The Nasdaq was down 120 points today. You're listening to NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston's COVID numbers are dropping. The city's Public Health Commission says the prevalence of the virus in wastewater is down. It says hospitalizations and confirmed cases have both fallen about 15 percent in the past two weeks. But the city's Health Commissioner, Basola Ojakutu, still recommends you wear a mask indoors and get tested after you are attending a large gathering.
20: We know that this is still an issue and fully understand that not everyone is adhering to every single mitigation strategy. But we're recommending what we think is appropriate, particularly if you are at higher risk or if you are living with people who are at higher risk.
0: Ojakutu says safety measures will help prevent a surge. The MBTA's red line service will resume at Alewife Station in Cambridge tomorrow morning. The station's been closed since Saturday. That's when a car crashed into a barrier on the top floor of the garage and caused major damage down below. MBTA police say today they're charging the driver. They say it appears that the driver intentionally caused the crash. Alewife station's main lobby still has to be repaired, so riders will have to use an alternative entrance at Russell Field. Mobile sports betting in Massachusetts is on track to begin next month. The state's Gaming Commission Executive Director Karen Wells today recommended March 10th as a start date. The launch would coincide with the NCAA's men's basketball tournament.
20: The suggestion is we do it that day because it gives us uh, the weekend if there's any issues before March Madness starts and then there's a Monday where we could uh, have a commission meeting if necessary if there's any issues before
19: the big tournament starts.
0: 11 companies are approved to operate mobile betting programs in the state. Lawmakers approved the legalization of sports betting this past summer. 46 degrees now. Temperatures should head upward tonight, hitting the low 50s by morning, then tomorrow downright gorgeous. Sunny skies, close to 60, back to the low to mid 40s over the weekend with sunshine both days. This is WBUR. It's 506. We're
19: funded by you, our listeners, and by Sony Pictures Classics, presenting Living, a new film directed by Oliver Hermanus, starring Bill Nye as a man who tries to turn his ordinary life into something wonderful, now playing Select Cities. We're
0: taking just less than a minute right now to tell you that you can get your Valentine shopping done right now and support this station right now at the same time because it is the last day to save 10% on roses for your Valentine. So send a gift from WBUR. Your Valentine will get some Winston flowers and you will be able to strengthen the journalism that you hear on WBUR. Uh, Check online because we have four selections, four different designs, especially if you can swing it. Check out the Ultimate Romance Arrangement. A contribution of $450 today, $500 after today. Beautiful raspberry roses, ranunculus, lilac. It's just gorgeous. Check it out. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Thank you.
4: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
0: And I'm Juana Summers.
11: A top Southwest Airlines executive was in the hot seat on Capitol Hill today. A Senate committee was questioning him over the airline's disastrous performance over the December holidays. Southwest canceled nearly 17,000 flights during that operational meltdown. The airline delayed thousands more, affecting at least 200,000 would-be travelers. NPR's transportation correspondent David Shaper covered the hearing. So, David, tell us what happened today.
16: Well, Juana, senators in both parties called for this hearing to demand an explanation of of what went wrong. But first, they all told stories of constituents who were stranded, some for many days, with little or no communication from the airline. There were stories of missed holiday celebrations, missed funerals, and even one woman who missed her own wedding and along with her wedding party lost tens of thousands of dollars in expenses. Senators also took their shots at the airline, including Nevada Democrat Jackie Rosen, who called it an unmitigated disaster
15: it is unacceptable that thousands of flights during the busiest travel season of the year were canceled or significantly delayed. They left many travelers stranded, affecting plans to be with families and loved ones. These cancellations had a devastating impact on families across Nevada. Lots of criticism there. So how did the
11: airline respond?
16: Well, the uh, airline's chief operating officer, Andrew Waterson responded really the only way he could, by saying he's sorry. I want to sincerely and humbly apologize to those impacted by the disruption. It caused a tremendous amount of anguish, inconvenience, and missed opportunities for our customers and our employees. Watterson then acknowledged that no matter how heartfelt, an apology would not suffice. He said the airline has been working hard to refund airfares for canceled flights and reimburse customers for, for extra expenses that they incurred like hotels and meals. They say, uh, the airline says they've returned almost all of the luggage now that people had gone weeks without. And then Watterson went on to try to explain why this fiasco happened. Let me be clear, we messed up. In hindsight, we did not have enough winter operations resiliency. Watterson also explained how an antiquated crew scheduling system failed, leaving the airline unsure of where many planes, pilots, and flight attendants were. Crew members reported spending hours on hold while trying to get in touch.
11: Wow, okay, this failure happened more than a month ago, and since then, Southwest has been promising fixes for their systems. Did Watterson give an update about that?
16: He did. He says the airline is investing $1.3 billion this year in upgrading its technology, including the failed crew scheduling software. They're also investing investing more in other equipment like de-icing trucks that were in short supply. And they're using outside experts to do a thorough and fully systemic review of all the company's operations. But the pilots union, which is currently in contract negotiations with Southwest, isn't fully convinced the airline is taking the right steps. The head of the union, Captain Casey Murray, also testified at the hearing, and he said this.
28: For years, our pilots have been sounding the alarm about Southwest's inadequate crew scheduling technology and outdated operational processes. Unfortunately, those warnings have been summarily ignored by Southwest leaders.
11: In the few seconds we have left, David, and the State mm-hmm. of the Union, President Biden talked about taking action to prevent airlines from nickel and diming people. So might we see Congress or the White House go after airlines for situations like this one?
16: Well, you know, several senators, including uh, particularly Democrats, brought up the need to beef up regulations of the airline industry. And this meltdown and others like it that we've seen over the last uh, several months uh, as airlines try to recover from the pandemic could help build momentum for such measures as an airline passengers bill of rights. So uh, we could be seeing uh, a lot
11: of activity on
16: that front uh, in this uh, in this current Congress.
11: NPR's David Shaper, thank you.
4: Thank you, Wana. A severe housing shortage in the U.S. means many people can't afford to buy homes in their communities. To help, some cities and states are taking a controversial step, changing decades-old laws that mandated only single-family homes be built in some neighborhoods. NPR's Jennifer Ludden is here to tell us more. Hey Jennifer. Hi. What kinds of building projects would these new laws allow?
20: So we're talking duplexes, townhomes, small apartment buildings, what supporters call the missing middle. Um, And these are buildings that have been banned for generations, right? And they were banned in part to keep out poor families, black families, other families of color. So, you know, racial equity is also a very big goal in these changes. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea is to create places that more people can afford to live and then there's also just this serious demographic mismatch i mean we have had most residential land in many cities devoted to houses that are getting Bigger and bigger. And the average American household has been shrinking. Today, nearly two-thirds are only one or two people.
4: But I can imagine homeowners pushing back saying, oh, it'll change the, I don't know, appearance of the neighborhood. It'll limit parking, whatever other NIMBY not-in-my-backyard complaints you might hear.
20: Totally. Totally. These are not easy to pass, which is why it's remarkable that they have passed so mm-hmm. far in three states oregon california and maine a handful of cities and they are debating this in many 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 more places i thought we could get a sense of the debate that is playing out margaret Barthel of member station wamu has been following a zoning proposal in arlington virginia which is just near washington dc let's listen on a Saturday last month, the Arlington County
32: Board strapped in for five hours of public comment on its missing middle plan, which would open up single-family neighborhoods to multifamily buildings. Here's residents Michael Lynch and Andrew Wells Dang.
30: Our street can't handle that, the neighborhood can't handle that, the school system can't handle that, and the city infrastructure can't handle that.
23: But the alternative to missing middle as I see it is a A county that's divided between mega homes on one side and high rises on the other.
32: Many current homeowners oppose the proposal. They'd prefer apartment buildings to stay in dense commercial corridors, not on their leafy green streets. But supporters of the measure say it could open up badly needed options for residents like Tara Siegel, who's 35 and currently rents a two bedroom apartment with her partner. They'd really like more space, but they already know that houses run close to a million dollars in Arlington. Even condos are too pricey. We, we saw a lot of homes, but when we... Um... When we brought it back down to what we could afford, what our price range was, suddenly all the homes disappeared. That was surprising news for a couple who together make above the median household income in Arlington, which is more than $120,000. It was sad for me, and and it made me feel just discouraged also, kind of bird our community board member katie crystal supports the missing middle plan she points out that it would reverse decades of zoning rules that priced out families of color and she worries about the growing gap between multi-million dollar single-family homes and subsidized affordable housing and the people like siegel who are falling through it we risk losing the future um, of our you know young to mid-career professionals who want to make Arlington home permanently. And that's a sizable number of people, Crystal says. Arlington is majority renter, and its largest age demographic is 25 to 34. Opponents of the plan fear that added density will create parking nightmares and change the character of their neighborhoods. Julie Lee is the Civic Association president in her neighborhood.
11: We don't have the space to incorporate
29: a a city or urbanized living within this small village of a community that we have.
32: And Lee says the county's own analysis shows that missing middle homes would still be too expensive for many, at least while they're brand new. Siegel knows that well, but still supports the proposal. For now, she and her partner have put their home search in Arlington on pause, and they're questioning if they want to buy a home at all. For NPR News, I'm Margaret Barthel in Arlington, Virginia.
4: And NPR's Jennifer Ludden is still here with us. Jennifer, we just heard about one place where this is being debated, but you said these policies have already passed in California, Oregon, and Maine. So how's it going there?
20: It is going pretty slowly. Not a ton of new housing has come out of these uh, laws. Um, To find out why, I talked with David Garcia. He works in housing policy at UC Berkeley. He spoke with developers in seven states about, like, what's going on, and he got a real reality check.
16: I was surprised that there was not more enthusiasm around building these smaller-scale housing types amongst the developers that we interviewed. There is a belief that the zoning is the key to unlocking all of these new housing units and I think uh, maybe it's more like the first step.
20: So, for example, if you now can, say, build a four-unit building, but you have to do it in the exact same space, you would have put, say, a 2,000-square-foot house, it is not going to work. That is too Mm -hmm. cramped. So Garcia says cities need to make other changes, like allowing more square feet, a smaller setback from the street. You know, if you eliminate parking requirements, you don't have to have a driveway, and that gives you more space. Also, you know, land and construction right now is so expensive. Think California. Uh, Developers told him really the larger units, like six to eight or more, are much more financially viable for them.
4: And do those units still get the pushback from the local neighbors even after the zoning laws have changed?
20: Actually, no, this is good for developers. It turns out these zoning laws let them avoid that, mostly. Eli Spivak is with a company called Orange Splot in Portland, Oregon. He's got uh, two townhomes underway there and a couple of six-unit buildings. And he says it is hugely helpful they will not be subject
24: to appeal. The appeal provides unpredictability and risk for a builder. And when you're talking about small builders, they can't take that risk. If you're doing one of the projects I described, you can check the boxes and if you check all the boxes and it's a long list then you're guaranteed to go to a building permit
4: and then big question how affordable is this new housing
20: well we are mostly talking market rate and we know right now that is not really affordable for very many people in this country um still many of them will be less than a single family home in the same neighborhood sometimes a lot less but the bottom line is you know housing experts tell us The reason everything is so very expensive is largely because of this incredible, massive shortage of housing, millions of units short. And the only way to change it is to just keep building more and more for years
4: to come. Supply and demand. NPR's Jennifer Ludden, thank you. Thank
20: you.
11: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, aid workers throughout Turkey and Syria are scrambling to deliver blankets, food and clothing to the hundreds of thousands of people displaced by the earthquake that's still ahead. We're funded by
18: you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC.
0: A down day for the Dow today. Stocks lost about three-quarters of a percent to close at 33,700. S&P and NASDAQ also lost ground. The S&P fell nearly nine-tenths of a percent to finish at 4,082. The NASDAQ dropped one percent to end the session at 11,790. Our gray day is becoming an overcast night. What changes, though, is the temperature. Should be on the rise tonight, reaching 53 by sunrise tomorrow. Then during the day tomorrow, the calendar gets ahead of itself. Sunny, nearly 60 degrees. For Saturday, sunny and chillier down around the 40s. And then Sunday, sunshine, clouds, high temperatures in the mid-40s. 45 degrees now in Boston at 520.
19: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by downtown Boston's new Third Space. Pop-up art gallery, live performances, lunch hangout, and Thursday night events. More at downtownboston.org slash thirdspace. Sending your valentine Winston flowers from
25: WBUR creates stories that help you think deeply about the world. I'm Meghna
27: Chakrabarty. Send your gift almost anywhere in New England, and your support will enrich the lives of thousands of WBUR listeners in Boston and beyond. Order by midnight tonight to save 10% on all four choices, including a dozen long-stemmed red roses.
0: Visit WBUR.org. In fact, the stories you hear about zoning changes to create affordable housing, we just heard that, about Southwest Airlines answering for its scheduling meltdown over the holidays, these stories and the ones you're about to hear come to you because of your contributions. What you also get right now... A Valentine's Day arrangement from Winston Flowers. They are beautiful. There are four different designs for you to check out. You can do that right now at WBUR.org. And today is the last day to save 10% on roses for your Valentine. Again, beautiful flowers from Winston Flowers. You get the gift for your Valentine and you strengthen local journalism at the same time. Check them out: a dozen long-stem red roses, two dozen long-stem red roses, the ultimate romance arrangement, and the flower of the month subscription. One 9287 Thank you so much.
21: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com.
4: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
11: And I'm Juana Summers. 20 years ago, the late Democratic Congressman John Conyers of Michigan posed this question to a crowd of
24: thousands. Reparations not in the next century, not in 2185, not 10 years from now, but reparations win, reparations win.
11: He was the original sponsor of H.R. 40, a bill that would create a task force to study reparations for Black Americans, a bill named after the storied and ultimately unfulfilled Reconstruction-era promise of 40 acres of land for formerly enslaved people. That rallying cry from Conyers came on the grounds of the U.S. Capitol. Some of that building's most recognizable architecture is one of many still-visible legacies of slave labor. And in its halls. The debate has continued over what reparations should look like or whether
0: they should exist at all. There is no dispute that the wealth of this country was built on the stolen lands of indigenous people and on the free slave labor of black people.
31: Many of the residuals of the transatlantic slave trade, sadly, are still very much with us. African-Americans are less likely to own homes than white Americans, one of the key bridges to our wealth in the United States. Reparation.
23: Is divisive, the demeaning my parents' generation, that was one of the greatest generations in the history of our
30: country. If you give a man a fish, you feed him a day. You teach him to fish, you feed him a lifetime. Reparation is only feeding you for a day. Their
17: focus on money misses the point. The goal of this historical commission and its investigations to bring American society to the new reckoning. We're asking for people to understand the pain, the violence, the brutality, the chattelness, of what we
12: went through.
11: And- after those moments of debate in 2021, H.R. 40 garnered enough support to advance out of the House Judiciary Committee for the very first time. I covered that vote and the months of inaction that came after it. The bill never received a vote on the House floor that year. It still hasn't.
30: We haven't taken a moment to stop and pause and reflect and look look ourselves in the mirror as a country and really be honest with ourselves about how those harms continue to persist.
11: That's New York Congressman Jamal Bowman, who made reparations part of his pitch when he first ran for his seat. As some state and local efforts have slowly moved forward on reparations across the country, this Black History Month, we checked in with Bowman on where things stand now on the federal level welcome back and thanks for speaking with us
30: of course thank you so much for having me
11: and congressman several years ago you and i spent a bunch of time together both in your district and here in washington dc and one of the things that we talked extensively about was this house bill on the issue of reparations for black americans remind us briefly if you could what hr 40 actually does
30: hr 40 uh, seeks to form a commission to study the impact of slavery Jim Crow, and other forms of discrimination, and then determine uh, the next steps, what sort of compensation might be attached to what the research finds.
11: When you and I last spoke about this bill, there was a really strong sense of optimism because H.R. 40, for the first time, had garnered enough support to make it out of committee. That happened in 2021. And at the time that we spoke, you pushed the importance of Democrats winning the midterm elections to have enough support to pass this bill into law. But Democrats lost the House and there's little hope of a Republican-controlled Congress approving this bill. So what is the next best practical step in this process?
30: Uh, the president should take executive action to form a commission to study the need for reparations for the African-American community. Um, we are in a historic moment, a heightened level of consciousness around structural racism and institutional racism overall. And people are having fresh conversations around what's happening in health care, what's happening in housing, policing, mass incarceration, the education system. We are dealing with that front and center in a way that we haven't over the course of my lifetime. We are also dealing with the resurrection of white nationalism and white supremacy that's threatening the very nature of our democracy. We have an extreme Supreme Court um, that is looking to probably strip affirmative action away if their previous judgments are any indication of what they may decide. So we're in a moment right now where There's heightened levels of activism and consciousness, but also the pushback is very aggressive from people like Ron DeSantis and many others uh, around the country. So we need historic leadership from President Biden right now. We need him to be vision setting for what America can be, as opposed to making minor comments that simply paint around the edges Uh, when it comes to racial justice in our country. And I would just add that I was very disappointed and frustrated at the end of the previous Congress after we knew we lost the majority, that we didn't push harder to at least get H.R. 40 to pass the House, even though it had 218 co-sponsors and even though it was voted out of committee.
11: Thinking about the current makeup of the House of Representatives, Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan is now chair of the Judiciary Committee, the panel that first advanced H.R. 40, and he's been critical of this legislation. Back in 2021, he said that H.R. 40 would spend millions of dollars on a commission to, and I'm quoting here, take money from people who were never involved in the evil of slavery and give it to people who were never subject to the evil of slavery. Can I just ask you, what goes through your mind when you hear arguments like that presented?
30: Well, Jim Jordan is miseducated, uh, like many in the Republican Party are miseducated on this issue, and unfortunately, many in the Democratic Party are also miseducated on this issue, and many independents are miseducated on this issue. The purpose and the process of forming a commission is not only to study the impact of de facto and de jure racism but to educate the American public on what their findings are and what we can do about the current harm that African-Americans have to endure. If Republicans control the House of
11: Representatives in absent executive action from President Biden, what more can be done to ensure that that commission exists? Does this bill simply just become symbolic?
30: At this moment, the bill continues to be an important communication tool on the issue. Uh, We as members of Congress and actually leaders and elected officials across the country have to continue to raise their voices regarding the importance of this bill. Um, We also need to tell the story of other groups throughout American history and world history that have received reparations because I think that helps to articulate the African-American argument uh, for reparations. It's about a movement across the country for justice and equality for all people. It's a process of healing and truth and reconciliation that America has to go through with itself. You know, and not just for African Americans, I might add. I would argue for indigenous people, for women, and for other marginalized groups as well. We gotta tell the truth and we gotta heal collectively as a nation.
11: Congressman Jamal Bowman, Democrat from New York, thanks again for speaking with us.
30: No problem. Thank you.
4: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Give back to your community with a mental health and wellness degree from Leslie University. Get started at leslie.edu.
23: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, the Senate has voted to confirm the first federal judge this year. NPR's Kerry Johnson tells us Filling judicial vacancies is a big priority for the Biden White House.
18: Deandria Benjamin will serve on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Benjamin has presided over scores of trials as a state judge in South Carolina. She's also worked as a prosecutor and an employment lawyer. The Senate Judiciary Committee also advanced dozens of other judge nominees who have endured long waits. They include voting rights expert Dale Ho and reproductive rights expert Julie Rickelman. Those candidates still require a vote from the full Senate. Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz calls those nominees extreme. But if all Democrats stick together, they should win confirmation. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington.
23: The Ukrainian family of the late cinematographer Helena Hutchins are suing actor Alec Baldwin and others behind the movie Rust, as NPR's Mandalit del Delbarco tells us she was killed on the set in 2021.
33: In a video recorded in Ukraine, Hutchins' mother, Olga Solovey, cried as Sister Svetlana Semko spoke about their pain over Helena's death. I believe to let this go and to leave this unpunished is unallowable. The video, interpreted into English, was played during a press conference in Los Angeles by attorney Gloria Allred, who filed a civil lawsuit on behalf of the family. Helena was killed when the gun Alec Baldwin was holding went off during
0: a rehearsal. I haven't heard from Alec Baldwin, the man with the gun a loaded gun that ended the life of their daughter.
33: Allred says Hutchins died before the war in Ukraine started, but that she would have tried to bring her family to the U.S. Mandalit del Barco, NPR
23: News. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street after flipping from gains to losses today. The Dow down 249 points. That's about three quarters of a percent. You're listening to NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts State Senate has voted to do away with the eight-year term limit for Senate President. Democratic State Senator Michael Rodericks of Fall River testified in favor of the change today. He said no other position in the legislative or executive branch in Massachusetts has such a restriction on tenure.
7: With a term limit, the Senate is at a distinct disadvantage when it comes to legislating and advancing our members' priorities with the governor's office and the House. When any Senate leader gets anywhere close to that deadline.
0: Today's 32 to 6 vote clears the way for the current Senate president, Karen Spilka, or any future Senate president to serve indefinitely. More than 20,000 people have died in the devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria. There are relief efforts coming in from across Massachusetts. They include supply donations and medical missions. WBR's Yasmin Amher has more.
8: There are designated spots like the Turkish consulate in Boston where people can drop off items for earthquake survivors. The nonprofit Syrian American Medical Society is also collecting money for medical supplies. Board member Abdul Fattah Al-Shar of Norwood has previously treated war refugees in the region affected by the earthquake and says he and other local doctors are preparing to go again.
9: We are ready to take the place from our daily schedule. We will be able to have more than one uh, medical mission. And I'm hoping to be uh, a part of this uh, myself.
8: You can find a list of local aid efforts at WBUR.org. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm
0: Yasmin Amr. A former Everett school superintendent was found guilty today of sexually assaulting a payroll clerk for the school district. 79-year-old Frederick Forrester was convicted of indecent assault and battery, a jury found who's responsible for repeatedly touching the woman on her buttocks. He will serve 90 days in jail and have to register as a sex offender. In the forecast, some random showers this evening and tonight. Temperatures actually increased tonight to the low 50s. Tomorrow, April for a day. Sunny skies, highs near 60, then pulling back to the 40s over the weekend. It is 44 degrees now in Boston at 535.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by One Fine Morning from Sony Pictures Classics. Lea Seydoux stars as a widow who juggles her young daughter, her sick father, and an affair with a married friend, now playing Select Cities.
0: If you have a Valentine, we want to tell you something, Valentine's Day, if you maybe didn't remember, is Tuesday. We've got a way you can do two things for the people you love. Send Winston flowers to a Valentine, even a friend, a family member perhaps, and support the station that you love, WBUR. You can order from a selection of four designs of Winston flowers today. Check them out at WBUR.org right now. There is the Flower of the Month subscription, the Ultimate Romance Arrangement, which I have before me right now. It is glorious with way too many flowers to mention here two dozen long-stem red roses, and a dozen long-stem red roses if you prefer that. So you can save 10% if you order today. Once again, order your flowers through WBUR from Winston Flowers. You'll be happy you did because you're supporting WBUR and making your Valentine really happy. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Thank you.
25: Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person more at yourparttimecontroller.com and from procter and gamble maker of metamucil a fiber supplement containing psyllium a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system designed to be taken every day more at metamucil.com
4: this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
11: And I'm Juana Summers. A new bill passed in Mississippi's Republican-controlled state house this week is drawing harsh criticism from Democrats. That bill, if made law, would allow the state's chief justice and attorney general, both of whom happen to be white, to appoint judges and prosecutors for a new and separate court system for a district in the capital of Jackson, city that happens to be majority black. That would mean voters would no longer get to elect the judges and prosecutors for this district. Jackson's mayor, Shokwe Antar Lamumba, likened the plan to apartheid. He blasted its supporters on Tuesday.
17: For the other legislators, uh, I was surprised that they came half-dressed because they forgot to wear their hoods.
11: Mayor Lumumba joins me now. Thanks for being here.
17: Thank you for having me, and thank you for speaking to this issue.
11: I mean, there is no mistaking how you feel about this bill. But before I ask you more about that, I'm wondering what you've been hearing from current judges and prosecutors and police about this bill, the impact they think it would have on the city.
17: Uh, well, there has been a, a unified effort to combat this bill from all elected officials within Hines County. The judges came out and, and made a statement and, and did a demonstration and protest. The Hines County District Attorney, is on record uh, being against this particular bill. And it's just part and parcel of of an effort that has been ongoing for some time to seize power uh, from the city of Jackson, not only this democratic city, but seize power from this largely African-American city.
11: The sponsor of this bill, State Representative Trey Lamar, we should note, does not live in Jackson, but he has said that this effort is about helping to prevent crime and resolving a backlog of cases moving through the Hines County court system. Jackson has had the highest homicide rate in the nation for the past two years. Do you dispute what Lamar says is the bill's ultimate goal here, to make Jackson safer for the people who live there?
17: absolutely if he was concerned with supporting the issue of public safety in jackson uh, then they would have sponsored a bill for the numerous requests of the jackson police department that have asked for additional equipment in order to to shorten the time frame of a case actually going to trial Uh, they would support the state crime lab which is a major contributor to the backlog of cases all of these things that we have come year after year requesting and, and trying to get implemented and and support uh, that have been denied. What they simply want to do is control Jackson. Uh, And so this is a power grab, whether you're talking about the Capitol Complex District, whether you're talking about our water system, whether you talk about the the fight we are having over our airport right now for control, uh, whether you talk Uh about the attempt to take over our school district, they are all consistent with one another. So
11: I want to go back to the issue of public safety and crime. Last year, the homicide rate was 88 percent. So How are you and other city leaders addressing that homicide rate as well as the deeper problems that are behind it?
17: Yeah, well, well, if they had bothered to ask us, they would have found that uh, Jackson suffering like the rest of the nation with an increased homicide rate, that most of our homicides have been due to interpersonal relationships, uh, which policing alone by itself has limited impact on that. Uh, I have never said defund the police. What I have said is that we can use other tools and resources in order to tack this comprehensive challenge in a comprehensive way. But that isn't the, the sincere and earnest uh, desire of the legislature, I believe. And so what they're trying to do is create a city within a city for the most densely populated white portion of the city of Jackson. Uh, let's call a spade a spade.
11: The Bell sponsor, Trey Lamar, has argued repeatedly that his efforts, they're not racially motivated. It does not sound like you believe that to be the case.
17: Well, if you if you walk like a duck, quack like a duck, then you probably shouldn't be offended by someone calling you a duck. There's one delegate from Hines County uh, that has supported this, this particular bill. Uh, m- mind you, uh, one of the white delegates uh, has supported this bill. Uh, but this wasn't done in consultation with any of our delegation. It wasn't done in consultation with me as the mayor. Uh, But yet you just know better than I do. Uh, As he stated, you know, we need the best and the brightest. And and apparently, uh, as Black Democrats, we're not smart enough to know what we need best.
11: What do you want the bill supporters and others across the country hearing this conversation to understand about the needs of your city, of the people of Jackson, that you think have gone unacknowledged here?
17: First and foremost, I want them to understand that the people of Jackson have wisdom. They have an understanding of what best serves their community. Uh, they, like any other community, deserve the right to determine who are the people who have such authority over them, authority to take lives in the police force that they're trying to implement, authority to sentence people uh, to, to long-term sentences with without oversight or any accountability to the residents. You know, we've been here before. Uh, this reflects of a Mississippi of old. And to quote former coach Dennis Green, uh, they are who we thought they were.
11: Jackson, Mississippi Mayor Shokwe and Tarla Mumba, thank you so much for being here.
17: Thank you for having me. I appreciate
11: it. And we have reached out to State Representative Trey Lamar for a response we have not yet heard back.
4: Overseas, recovery efforts continue across Turkey and Syria after Monday's devastating magnitude 7.8 earthquake. Aid workers are scrambling to deliver food, blankets and clothes to the hundreds of thousands of people displaced by the disaster, as criticism of the Turkish government's response at home continues to rise. NPR's Rob Schmitz brings us this story from an aid distribution center in Istanbul.
34: At a warehouse on the banks of Istanbul's Bosphorus Strait, more than a thousand volunteers are in constant motion. Taking in donations, packing them in boxes, and then loading them onto container trucks. If you stand still, you're likely to be hit by a swarm of moving bodies or a forklift carrying crates of donated goods. High school student Emrehan Korkmaz is here because school throughout Turkey is closed to mourn the victims of the quake and so that people like him can help out.
27: We've managed to unload 18 semi-trucks and send them to the earthquake zone. They're filled with blankets, clothes, but there is a more urgent need for food. However we can get it to them, it doesn't matter. People there need food. This
34: aid distribution center in the Istanbul district of Beyoğlu is one of dozens in the city working 24-7 to deliver donated goods to southern Turkey. A banner with the image of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan hangs above the bustle. A leader who's been under fire by political opposition for not doing enough.
28: <inaudible>
34: Turkish opposition leader Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu said Erdogan's government was not prepared for this earthquake because his party fed tax money meant for natural disaster relief to his cronies. Speaking inside the earthquake zone, Erdogan admitted what he called discomforts after the initial quake, but said the situation is now under control. Outside the distribution center, 20-year-old Ereem Nur Salamis is making a second trip here to donate blankets and clothes. When I ask if the government is doing enough, she says this is not a time to talk about politics. It's a time to help people who need it. Rob and NPR News, Istanbul.
4: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The Nicaraguan government has freed almost all of its political prisoners. Two hundred and twenty-two were put on a plane and flown to Washington, D.C. NPR's Ada Peralta reports this was a surprise move from an increasingly authoritarian government. As they waited at the arrivals hall of Dallas
28: International Airport in Virginia, they read the names of the now freed political prisoners. According to family members, police collected dissidents from across the country overnight and took them to a notorious prison in the capital nicknamed El Chipote. They were priests and journalists and members of the opposition, and they didn't know until this morning that they were being freed. Ariana Gutierrez Pinto's mother is a human rights activist who was jailed more than a year ago. Pinto got a call that her mother was already on a plane headed her way. She fell to her knees, she says, and in a daze drove to the airport.
18: No nos han dicho nada. Mi mamá Evelyn
14: Pinto. Tiene 63 años y su cumpleaños es el 27 de febrero.
28: She hadn't heard details. She doesn't even remember when she last saw her mother. She can't think, she says, but she's yearning to hold her mother in her arms. Ever since anti government protests erupted in Nicaragua in 2018, President Daniel Ortega has unleashed violent repression. He has consolidated his power, squashed popular protests, thrown his political opponents in prison, and hundreds of thousands of Nicaraguans have fled. On national television, a judge said that the 222 prisoners were being deported to the United States to, quote, protect peace and national security. Los deportados fueron declarados traidores a la patria. Traitors, he called them. And at the same time, Nicaragua's National Assembly passed a new law that sought to override the Constitution and strip the former prisoners of their Nicaraguan citizenship.
13: In part, we are happy, we are celebrating.
28: But on the other hand, they are not really free. That's Arturo Mcfield, a former Ortega official who defected last year. The political prisoners cannot go back to
13: their homes, cannot go and have a political life, a civil life. Story, work, express themselves freely. That does not exist in Nicaragua.
28: McField says for the Ortega regime, this is a quote, political maneuver. What the regime is facing, he says, is an internal crisis. Over the past couple of years, even some of Ortega's closest allies have turned on him, and some of them have been jailed. McField says pressure was building inside the regime, and this prisoner release buys him breathing room and a little goodwill from the international community.
4: So if you want to do Back in
28: Virginia, the political prisoners became exiles. At a hotel close to the airport they reunited with tearful family members. Juan Sebastian Chamorro, who was jailed for running against President Ortega in 2021, said the plane ride out was a moment of conflicting emotions.
17: Cantamos el himno nacional especialmente al salir de
28: They sang the national anthem, he said. They were happy, but they were banished. They were banished, he said, but they were free. Adapralta, NPR News, Mexico City.
11: Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Still to come on 90.9 WBUR, what the U.S. is learning about the capabilities of the enormous Chinese balloon the U.S. shot down over the weekend. That story coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. In the forecast, clouds linger tonight as temperatures top 50 by daybreak tomorrow then rise to about 58 tomorrow afternoon, lots of sunshine. The weekend, though, should feel more like February. Saturday should be sunny, gusty winds, only about 40 degrees tops. Then Sunday, partly sunny, a
24: little bit milder,
0: temperatures in the mid-40s. It's 549.
24: Winston
6: Flowers from WBUR support your source for news. See all four choices and order yours by midnight tonight to save 10%. Visit WBUR.org.
0: And we hope you will call 1-800-909-9287 right now or go to WBUR.org where you can get a look at the flowers. There are four choices. A dozen long-stem red roses. That's with a contribution of $135 today. And again, you get 10% off if you order today. After this, it'll be $150. Send two dozen long-stem red roses. Send the ultimate romance arrangement or the flower of the month subscription with a contribution of $1,080 today, $1,200 at after today, these are beautiful, high quality flowers, and one of the best things is you're contributing to WBUR and all you hear here as well. 1 909 9287, WBUR.org. Thank you.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, offering in person and online events, including herbal classes, meditations, and more. Calendar at slash events.
4: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro.
11: And I'm Juana Summers. American popular music has lost a giant. Burt Bacharach has died. He was 94.
4: Bacharach was a Grammy and Oscar winning composer behind many hit songs What the World Needs Now, Walk On By, and Raindrops Keep Falling On My Head.
13: Raindrops Keep Falling On My Head. And just like the guy whose feet are too big for his. Seems to fit. Those raindrops are falling on my head. They keep falling.
30: So I just
11: did. Bert Baccarack wrote melodies that appealed to generations of listeners. NPR's Elizabeth Blair has this appreciation.
33: Seems fair to say just about everyone has heard a Bert Backerack tune. What's new, Pussycat?
15: Baby, it's you, baby, it's you, down the street,
1: and
33: I start to cry, each time we meet, walk on by. Bert Backrack's songs were productions. He added horns and strings. Backrack and his partner, lyricist Hal David, worked out of New York's famed Brill building in the 1960s. Their star vocalist was Dionne Warwick. Backrack songs might sound simple, but there's nothing simple about them. Dion Warwick told the BBC, Backrack had his own way of structuring a song.
1: It was almost as if I was taking an exam every time I sang one of Backrack's melodies.
33: Because Backrack was known to change up a song's tempo, or time signature, without even realizing it.
1: He had no regard whatsoever for time signature. If he was writing a song in
18: 4-4 time, which is common time, to throw a 7-8 bar in there and nothing to him. I mean, if that's the way he felt, that's what he wrote.
33: It was Dion Warwick who pointed out to Backrack that the time signature of his song, Anyone Who Had a Heart, is constantly changing. Anyone who ever loved could look at me Music speeds up and then slows down and then speeds up again, unusual for a pop song in the early 1960s. Of course, Warwick makes it sound effortless. Bert Bachrach grew up in Queens, New York. His father worked in the men's clothing business and later as an author and syndicated newspaper columnist. His mother was an amateur painter and musician. She insisted her son practice cello, drums, and piano. As a teenager, young Bert snuck into jazz clubs to see Dizzy Gillespie and Count Basie. He studied with renowned classical composer Darius Mio. Backrack told NPR he was afraid the composer wouldn't like a piece he wrote for the class because it didn't fit in the modern style they were learning.
24: I was very, very reluctant when it came to the second movement because it was quite melodic instead of being harsh and dissonant and avant-garde. And he took me aside afterwards, and maybe he sensed what I felt. His observation was, never be ashamed of something that's melodic, that one could whistle. And I said, wow.
33: infectious melodies with a tinge of melancholy. Backrack songs were on the radio during a tumultuous time. The Vietnam War, civil rights protests, assassinations. There's an ache in the songs he wrote with Hal David. Why do birds suddenly
8: appear Every time you are near Just like me
18: to
33: you. As an adult, Backrack was a known charmer and something of a playboy. He married four times, but he also knew loneliness. He told NPR that he didn't have a lot of friends when he was a teenager.
24: I do remember going into Times Square every New Year's Eve, uh, taking the subway from Forest Hills uh, by myself and just standing amongst hundreds of thousands of people. Never went with a friend. Not that I had many friends to go with.
18: What the world needs now Is love, sweet love It's the only
33: thing That there's just too little love Albert Backrack did not let age slow him down. When he was in his 70s, he worked with Elvis Costello and Dr. Dre. In his 80s, he was still performing at rock festivals and the White House. He and Hal David had a falling out in the early 1970s when they worked on Lost Horizons, a movie that flopped. They didn't speak except through lawyers for nearly 10 years. Eventually, they made up and even worked together again. In 2011, Backrack and David received the prestigious Gershwin Prize for Popular Song from the Library of Congress. David was too sick to attend the ceremony. Accepting the award, Backrack said, I feel lonely up here, and called his longtime partner a great lyricist. Hal David died in 2012. Backrack said it was David's idea to give the song What the World Needs Now to singer Jackie DeShannon. Like so many of their songs, it became a top ten hit that feels timeless. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News.
11: Okay, so I have to confess, I did not realize that Burt Bacharach was a Tiny Desk performer. Did you know this?
4: Chief among his accolades, he is an alum of the Tiny Desk, although there's an asterisk next to it because he was not physically in the building at the Tiny Desk. He did a Tiny Desk concert during the pandemic, uh, part of NPR Music's Tiny Desk Home series, Mm. where he joined another powerhouse songwriter, Daniel Tashin, doing a few songs from their recent collaborative EP, Blue Umbrella. And what amazes me is that he was as productive and creative as ever all the way into his 90s i mean
11: it's like you were saying to me earlier you may not necessarily know that he was behind the song but when the notes of the song play you, you definitely know the, song. know the song if you would like to watch that tiny desk concert it is at npr.org forward slash tiny desk just search for bert bacharach
18: <laughs>
4: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
25: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from Karla Itzkovich, whose gift, in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. And from Mattress Firm, whether browsing online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Discover how Jean Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again, ICABoston.org.
29: I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR Boston's NPR news station.
0: The death toll from the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria has now risen to more than 20,000 people with tens of thousands more wounded. The vast destruction is becoming clearer every day. The scene in one flattened city gives the idea of the scale. We'll take you there. Today is Thursday, February 9th and this is WBUR as all things considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the U.S. Navy and the FBI are working to recover the remains of the Chinese balloon it shot down over the Atlantic Ocean.
14: And along the way, we learned a thing or two which you'll hear in the classified briefing about the PRC's use of the balloon.
0: We'll hear about President Biden's pledge to improve accountability for law enforcement and the ongoing controversy among Florida high school athletic officials about a proposal to require female athletes to disclose details of their menstrual cycles. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's
31: 601. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Speer. The death toll in Turkey and Syria for Monday's powerful earthquake now tops twenty. Thousand NPR's Ruth Sherlock reports from Tep Turkey, on the continued efforts to find potential survivors in the rubble of collapsed buildings.
3: Every building we stop at has an expected death toll of dozens, and that's just along this one highway, over 80 miles away in Antakya. The city's mayor said on Tuesday that only 2% of the buildings there had been excavated so far. It's going to take a long time to understand the true loss caused by this earthquake.
31: NPR's Ruth Sherlock. Harsh criticism for Southwest Airlines on Capitol Hill today as a Senate committee held a hearing on the airline's operational meltdown over the December holidays. NPR's David Shaper reports the committee may consider stronger airline consumer protections.
16: Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz's criticism of Southwest for thousands of holiday flight cancellations is blunt. It was an epic screw-up. And Paul Hudson of the group Flyers Rights told the committee the operational debacle was not unexpected.
10: Southwest, as well as other airlines, have had past meltdowns due to obsolete technology, lack of reserves of personnel and equipment, lack of stress testing and unrealistic and deceptive scheduling.
16: Southwest's chief operating officer acknowledges that, quote, we messed up. And he promises investments in technology, equipment and staff will prevent such a meltdown from happening again. David Shaper, NPR News.
31: One of the more visible January 6th defendants, a Delaware man seen threatening a police officer with a pole attached to a Confederate battle flag while storming the Capitol in 2021, has been sentenced to three years in prison. Kevin Seafried tearfully apologizing for his participation in the insurrection. a U.S. District Court judge in Washington. Justice Department officials have sought a harsher sentence for Seafried, a drywall mechanic. Hundreds of NBC News staffers walked off the job today. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports the one-day work stoppage is in protest of layoffs their union says were illegal. Uh,
24: Staff from the Today Show, MSNBC and NBC News picketed outside 30 Rockefeller Plaza in midtown Manhattan, carrying signs protesting what they called illegal firings and bad faith contract negotiations by management. The walkout was spurred by seven members of their union, the News Guild, being laid off last month. Tourists looked on, as did an eight-foot inflatable rat known as Scabby, often seen at labor protests. An NBC News spokesperson said, quote, We are disappointed by the News Guild's continued attempt to misrepresent the facts while we work in good faith with them to reach an agreement. Quill Lawrence, NPR News, New York.
31: Stocks lost ground on Wall Street today. The Dow dropped 249 points. The Nasdaq was down 120 points. You're listening to NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Internal Revenue Service is recommending Massachusetts taxpayers hold off on filing tax returns if they got a special tax refund from the state in 2022. Massachusetts issued special refunds to about 3 million people last year because the amount of state revenue triggered a law that requires the return of excess collections. The IRS has not yet decided whether those rebates are subject to federal tax. They are not taxable on your state returns. Michael Sacco is an accountant from Worcester. He recommends his clients proceed with filing.
4: We're going to include this 62F refund as part of or in addition to the normal state tax refund that you received and would include it in income.
0: Sacco says if you've already filed your taxes, you may have to amend your return based on what the IRS decides. Massachusetts will continue to allow people to receive prescriptions for medical marijuana through telehealth appointments, and dispensaries can continue to offer curbside pickup for medical marijuana. The State Cannabis Control Commission voted today to extend the pandemic-era orders, allowing those practices through the end of the calendar year. The group is expected to meet again later this year to review the regulations. A new survey from the Mass Inc. polling group finds high housing costs, homelessness, and inflation are top of mind for many Massachusetts residents. But another top priority came as a surprise to pollsters. That is crime and public safety. WBR's Wilder Fleming has the story.
27: Many in Massachusetts say their top concerns include the economy, inflation, and housing. Mass Inc. Polling Director Steve Cozella says these have been big issues in recent years.
30: We've been doing polling in Massachusetts for a long time, and the economy has pretty much always been at or near the top of
4: these issues. He says what is surprising is 15 percent say public safety is the
27: most important issue facing the state. Cozella says it's been years since there's been any
4: major public concern over crime in Massachusetts. But here's the caveat. We never know for sure if this is just a one-off, but certainly it's something that has been there across the country.
27: Cozella says we need more data before we jump to conclusions. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Wilder Fleming.
0: It is 45 degrees now in the Boston area. Temperatures should head upward tonight, hitting the low 50s by morning. Then tomorrow, downright gorgeous. Sunshine close to 60 degrees, back to the low to mid 40s over the weekend. Some sunshine both days. This is WBUR at 6.07.
10: WBUR supporters include the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at WTGrantFDN.org.
0: This is WBUR, taking just about one minute now, a little less than that, to tell you we've got a tradition here at WBUR, and we are inviting you to take part right now. Over the past decades, tens of thousands of listeners have sent their Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR. Many have made it an annual tradition. You can right now see the flower choices at WBUR.org and send your Valentine the perfect gift. What's more, you're helping WBUR, strengthening our journalism that you hear every day. Here at 90.9 WBUR. So choose from four gorgeous offers, long stem red roses, of the ultimate rose arrangement. Check them out at WBUR and make your choice and make your pledge. 1 800 909 9287.
4: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro.
11: And I'm Juana Summers. The death toll from the earthquake in Turkey and Syria continues to rise. At least 20,000 people are dead. And the quake hit an area covering hundreds of square miles, collapsing thousands of buildings. NPR's Jason Bobian is near the epicenter of the quake in Turkey. He says the focus now is on recovering bodies rather than rescuing survivors. And we'll note this story for about three minutes contains disturbing descriptions.
12: As a rescue team carries a black body bag out of a debris pile that was once a multi-story apartment block, a group of women wail with grief. Workers hold back a young man who lunges at the bag, wanting to see if it's really his mother. An old woman collapses on the ground in tears. This is just one family in front of one rubble pile in a landscape of collapsed buildings. Scenes like this are unfolding across a vast swath of southeastern Turkey and northern Syria. It's been more than three days since the quake hit when most residents were sleeping. Many people here in Karaman Maresh, commonly known as Maresh, have accepted that they're waiting for their loved ones' bodies rather than their loved ones themselves. Getting a full body back to bury would be a blessing. Others say they'd take anything, a scarf, a shoe. Hakdan Saka is sitting on a pile of debris watching local volunteers pull blankets and steel bars out of another pile that used to be his sister's seven-story apartment building did they find any people in here alive uh burada hiç, uh, az yes. olsa, az. Yeah. very few people saka says to an interpreter that he's accepted that his sister brother-in-law and their child are
13: gone
12: uh, right
13: now they're not looking for rescue they're looking for funerals
12: prior to monday the city of marash had just over a million residents now most of the center of the city lies in ruins work crews with bulldozers and backhoes cut valleys through the fields of debris swollen black body bags sit waiting for collection in front of some of the rubble piles the quake also knocked out the electricity and running water people huddled around open fires to stay warm others are sleeping in their cars the air is filled with dust wood smoke and the distinct stench of rotting flesh One woman describes the current scene in her city as apocalyptic. Some help is arriving. In an open lot next to what used to be a major shopping mall, there's now a soup kitchen and a large white party tent. Bulent Yildirim is with a local Turkish aid group that's providing hot meals to residents and rescue workers. Lancel soup. In just a matter of days, local aid groups have arrived and are handing out food, blankets, toilet paper. There are piles of bottled water lining the main road. A tent city has gone up in a soccer stadium. What's missing are so many people. 55 year old Nuria Jomru says so many of her friends and relatives are dead, she can't even say how many were killed in the quake. Firstly, from family,
13: four people died. But from the relatives, five people in one building, seven people in one building. So she's not able to count right now.
12: Her hands are bloodied and bandaged from digging through the rubble to search for her son. Miraculously, on Monday, hours after the quake, searchers found Jomru's two-week-old granddaughter in the debris. The baby girl is named Alper. She's alive and she's healthy. Jason Bobian, NPR News,
4: Karaman Turkey. The Biden administration says it has learned a lot from fragments of that Chinese balloon that crossed the United States last week. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman has been briefing members of Congress and telling other countries to beware of the PRC or the People's Republic of China.
14: This irresponsible act put on full display... What we've long recognized is the PRC has become more repressive at home and more aggressive abroad.
4: We're joined now by NPR's Michelle Kellerman, who covers the State Department, and John Ruwich who tracks China. Good to have you both here. Hi there, Ari. And Michelle, what more has Washington been saying today?
15: Well, so the U.S. only picked up small parts of the balloon, which was shot down over the ocean on Saturday, and they're still studying those bits of equipment. But what they say they have are some images from when it was flying over the U.S. that show the balloon had equipment that was capable of conducting signals intelligence operations. It had multiple antennas and solar panels to operate the equipment. The U.S. also says, that the company that built the balloon has links to the Chinese military. And this is all according to declassified U.S. intelligence. The U.S. has been sharing this intelligence with lawmakers and with other countries. State Department spokesman Ned Price today said China has some explaining to do. Take a listen.
27: They
16: are presumably getting questions from countries all over the world uh, about the nature of this program, about previous violations uh, of sovereignty, uh, of. Uh, some 40 countries across five continents.
15: He wouldn't say how the U.S. knows that these balloons have flown over 40 countries and five continents, but he said that the U.S. is talking
4: to countries around the world about this. And John, how is this all going down in Beijing?
6: Well, the foreign ministry spokeswoman, Mao Ning, was asked earlier today about this idea that, uh, that U.S. officials have said that there's this fleet of Chinese balloons that's been flying over dozens of countries collecting intelligence. She said she doesn't know anything about it, uh, China so far stuck pretty tightly to their script, which is that this was an unmanned civilian airship that strayed into U.S. airspace by accident uh, and that shooting it down was an overreaction. Uh, Mao Ning did engage in a little whataboutism uh, at the press conference earlier. She suggested that some other unnamed country was actually the number one in terms of eavesdropping and spying. You know, We'll see what happens in, as hard evidence comes out about what this balloon was capable of and what it was doing. Uh, China, it has to be said, has been fairly restrained, you know, within the bounds of what you might expect. We haven't heard a peep from China's foreign minister, for instance, or from Wang Yi, the top communist party guy overseeing foreign policy, or for Xi, from Xi Jinping, for that matter.
4: Sounds like the drifting US-China relationship is drifting farther apart
15: Yeah, I mean, you know, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Deputy Secretary Sherman actually were due to go to Beijing last week. Uh, They called off the trip at the last minute because of this um, balloon incident. And now they're really entirely focused on talking to allies and partners around the world to take the China challenge more seriously. They say they're keeping channels open to Beijing and plan to reschedule the trip at some point, but it's not their focus now. And it's hard to see that happening anytime soon.
6: Yeah, from Beijing's side, you know, the saga of this balloon really seems to have caught Beijing off guard. Xi Jinping had wanted to improve relations with the U.S. and the West uh, for stability, you know, to focus on the economy this year, which has really been suffering. And China, when this whole thing blew up, was quite conciliatory, actually. It expressed regret about it. We haven't heard that lately. Uh, and the longer this drags out, the more complex it seems it's it's likely to become, Uh, That Blinken visit that Michelle was talking about was postponed. Uh, It seems likely to take a while uh, to reschedule it. They're still pulling parts of this balloon out of the ocean. Uh, But there may be an opportunity for some high-level dialogue next week when Blinken and Wang Yi, again, that's China's top foreign policy official, they're both going to be in Munich, Germany for a security conference. So uh, we'll see what comes out of that.
4: That is NPR's John Ruich and Michelle Kellerman. Thank you both.
15: Thank you. You're welcome.
11: This time of year, people from all over the world flock to Colorado to ski. It's not cheap, and increasingly, the big resorts can feel crowded. But a handful of mountain towns still maintain local ski hills that emphasize family and budget friendliness. Laura Palmisano with member station KVNF visited one in Lake City, Colorado.
5: At just 14 acres with one ski lift, the town-owned Ski Hill here isn't trying to compete with famous Colorado resorts like Vail, Aspen, or Breckenridge.
7: Well, our slogan is skiing the way it used to be.
5: Henry Woods coaches the local youth ski team. He's volunteered in the position for more than 40 years.
7: Skiing has helped me so much in my life, and when I was a kid, it helped me to have more self-esteem and be active and be in shape. I like the idea of imparting that to other kids. Kids like fourth grader Wyatt Loper.
8: Yeah, I'm kind of nervous because it's my first time skiing and I don't know what's ahead.
5: For a lot of Colorado parents, teaching kids to ski is pretty important.
17: We're trying our little one out in some skis, trying to get her a little bit better at this.
5: Jeb Braco is visiting from Metro Denver.
17: So she's two and a half, so trying to get her in some uh, turns and work on everything.
5: There are a lot of ski resorts closer to where Braco lives, but...
17: We're trying to hit all the cheaper ones, (laughs) While she's not very good.
5: Lake City is one of six city-run ski hills in Colorado. Daily lift tickets run from $16 to $43. That's compared to around $200 at some of Colorado's most popular resorts, which again are way, way bigger.
14: We don't have as many runs as they do but it's got that small town feel, so it's very convenient to come here and to bring your family here. It's a great place for beginners to learn.
5: Rebecca Kaminsky has five kids who are using the oldest operating ski lift in Colorado.
14: Oh, the lift, <laughs> the disc lift. Well, it's better than a rope toe, so.
5: <laughs> Skiers sit on a disc seat attached to a pole between their legs and are pulled up the hill.
14: It is something that you will not experience probably anywhere else, is getting to go up on a disc lift It's like riding an antique.
5: Lake City's low price lift tickets don't generate a huge surplus. So no luxury ski lodge here, just a tiny warming hut that could be described as a shed. But nobody comes to Lake City Ski Hill for the amenities. Out on the slopes, coach Henry Woods offers some pointers.
7: Put your skis together in between the turns.
5: Woods says his little town Ski Hill is a treasure and he hopes it continues to run for generations to come. For NPR News, I'm Laura Palmisano in Lake City, Colorado.
4: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on Marketplace this evening, severe staffing shortages are making it tougher for emergency and ambulatory services to answer 911 calls. Marketplace starts at 6.30. It's now 6.19.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities.
0: It was a down day for the Dow today. Stocks lost about three-quarters of a percent to close at 33,700. S&P and Nasdaq also lost ground. The S&P fell nearly nine-tenths of a percent to finish at 4,082. The Nasdaq dropped one percent to end the session at 11,790. In the forecast, some random showers this evening and overnight tonight. Temperatures actually increased tonight to the low 50s. Tomorrow's springtime for a day. Sunny skies, highs near 60, then pulling back to the 40s over the weekend. 44 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Sending
11: your valentine Winston flowers from WBUR supports your commitment to curiosity.
20: Save 10% until midnight tonight at WBUR.org.
0: You know you choose WBUR for your news and information because you trust us and we hope that you will choose to support WBUR right now because Valentine's Day comes up on Tuesday and you can send Valentine your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR because you trust us and we trust uh, uh, Winston flowers as well to send you the best quality flowers. Four different designs for you to choose from. Just go to WBUR.org and check them out. Choose your perfect gift for your Valentine by going to WBUR.org or calling 1-800-909-9287. Thanks so much
10: wbur supporters include cambridge naturals with over 300 bulk items including culinary spices medicinal herbs and household staples cambridgenaturals.com
4: it's all things considered from npr news i'm ari shapiro
11: and i'm juana summers in his state of the union address president biden pledged a number of reforms to improve police accountability In the audience were the parents of Tyree Nichols, who was fatally beaten by Memphis police officers. And the president challenged a divided Congress to act.
7: Let's come together to finish the job on police reform. Do something.
11: Here to talk more about this is Rashad Robinson. He's the president of the racial justice advocacy group Color of Change. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Rashad, just to start, are you satisfied with how you heard President Biden address police reform in his State of the Union speech? Well, I
1: think what we heard was in some ways exactly what we expect from President Biden at this point. I think the challenge, and you mentioned it, right, we are in a divided government. So this is not about listing off a set of policies that you hope Congress will pass. This is about actually having a conversation with the American people about power.
11: We should just note that the president previously signed an executive order that required federal law enforcement agencies to make a number of changes, including banning chokeholds, restricting no-knock warrants, mandating the use of body-worn cameras. But, Rashad, are there other things that you would like to see President Biden do unilaterally that would begin to chip away at this issue?
1: Well, we think that there's just far too much interaction that is funded between law enforcement and community that does not lead to solving any crimes. The thing, though, about executive orders, and I'm glad you uh, made it clear that this was about federal law enforcement, the vast majority of the issues that we are facing are happening at the local level the executive order was the best that the president could do in the absence of the george floyd act
11: passing i'd like to ask you if i could about the george floyd justice and policing act there were long negotiations on capitol hill on these issues that bill passed the house it could not clear the senate even with both chambers controlled by democrats so legislatively speaking Should the framework that was included in the George Floyd bill, should that be the place from where the work begins in this Congress? Or is there another starting point that you think that lawmakers should begin from?
1: Well, we should absolutely start there. I remember the conversations where Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina was supposed to bring along 10 Republican senators in order to land the plane on getting the 60 votes necessary to pass that piece of legislation. Now that didn't happen because what we know now is that law enforcement made a very clear signal that they were not supportive of this legislation. And now we also need to know if the Republicans who stood up for Tyree Nichols' family in the well of the Congress and clapped for them Are willing to actually do more than clap.
11: And to that end, Senator Scott has said recently that he believes that the George Floyd bill, that bill, is a non starter this year. So where does that leave things? That leads us to ask Senator Scott, well, what is a starter? What we continue to
1: hear from Republicans, from police unions, from police foundations, from the corporations that support them, is that they want change, but they're unwilling to actually name it. That the proposals we put on the table are non-starters, but they're unwilling to give us a starting
11: place. Police violence happens in this country, often caught on film in excruciating detail. There are calls to action, and they remain unmet. Is there anything that gives you hope that this time will be different?
1: What gives me hope is the advocacy and the, the progress we are seeing in so many local communities, the, the work to elect reform-minded district attorneys, the work to try new things around traffic stops and interactions with mental health advocates. The thing here that's important is that our civil rights can't just be a patchwork. They just can't shift when we move from one community to another, from one state to another. And that is the important role that the federal government has here.
11: Rashad Robinson, president of the racial justice advocacy group Color of Change. Thanks as always. Thank you for having me.
4: Young athletes in Florida will not have to report details of their menstrual cycles to school officials in order to play high school sports. That decision came today after weeks of controversy during an emergency meeting held by Florida athletic officials. NPR Sarah McCammon is following the story. And Sarah, this emergency meeting came after weeks of controversy. Explain what happened.
22: So we're talking about health forms, Ari, that, you know, athletes have to fill out with their doctors and turn into the school in order to compete. But this really came to a head several months ago after an investigation by the Palm Beach Post, which raised questions about why athletes were being asked for this information about their menstrual cycles and who has access to that data. A flood of public comments came in to the Florida High School Athletic Association, which makes these decisions. And under state law, the association's lawyers had to read all of those comments into the record today. Here's just one of them.
23: A female's menstrual history is a private matter between herself and her doctor. It has no bearing on her ability to participate in Florida athletics and may, in fact, discourage participation due to shame and embarrassment.
22: And that's about what it sounded like for more than an hour today. And, you know, these are particularly fraught questions right now because many people are worried about how their reproductive health information may be used, both because of the overturning of Roe v. Wade last year and in Florida, especially because of Governor Ron DeSantis' support for a ban on transgender athletes in girls' sports.
4: Tell us more about these medical forms. What kind of information do they collect and why?
22: in florida and in many other states that forum for years has included questions about menstruation things like what age a patient started her period the last date of her cycle historically in florida that section was optional but there's been discussion recently about making those questions mandatory and that's really what sparked a lot of this i spoke with dr judy simpson don and she's a pediatric gynecologist at the university of miami she says it's good for doctors to ask younger patients about their periods because they can be an important indicator of health But she says that information is not essential for sports, and it should be kept private.
5: And we've had a big push in our state to make sure that parents have autonomy over their children's education. Okay, if we're going to be saying these things, I think it's very important that parents also have autonomy over a child's private health information, and it shouldn't have to be required to be reported to the school, especially for something like menstrual history, which has absolutely no bearing on their ability to participate in these activities.
4: Okay, so officials in the state reversed course today. What does that mean for young Florida athletes going forward?
22: Yeah, after the hearing, after hearing from the public, the board voted 14 to 2 to adopt a new set of forms which no longer contain questions about menstruation. Going forward, starting next school year when this takes effect, doctors will just have to submit a one-page form signing off on the athlete's eligibility. That's instead of a longer one with more detailed medical information. One thing, Ari, that got less attention today, this new form that will be submitted to Florida schools requires athletes to list their sex assigned at birth. The old one only asked for sex. And the Florida High School Athletic Association says they've based the new form on recommendations from groups like the American Academy of Pediatrics. I reached out to the association for explanation of this change, and they did not respond. But one reproductive justice advocate in Florida I spoke to today told me she worries this information will be used to target transgender athletes in the
4: future. NPR's Sarah McCammon, thank you. Thank you.
19: This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Discover a dynamic career with a master's in clinical mental health counseling. With individualized, experiential learning, you'll thrive. GRE and prerequisite courses not required. State licensure eligible. Now accepting applications for fall. More at bgsp.edu.